Hey there. I feel like I just saw you. Well, I feel like I did just see you. I mean, we, <laughs> like it, it, it's not like one of those euphemisms. Boy, it seems like it was, it was like Monday. <laughs> Monday afternoon. Uh, what a week. Yeah, it's a big week. I was, uh, did you see Baseball Prospectus is launching an entire site devoted to the Mets? I had that moment of like, I did not the Mets. See that. But it have turns they... out they've got a bunch of local sites. They already have a Bronx site oh. for the for the Yankees. So you're they don't have a they don't have a giant site though. I, I feel I feel slighted there. But it's baseball. That's, it's coming. It's got to be coming. It's got to be coming. Yeah, giants. I'm, I'm too sure big. it's a big market. Yeah, and they're a good team. I'm sure it'll happen. But you know, ESPN did that. They launched like ESPN Boston or something. And yeah, exactly. ESPN has a New York. Yeah, um, but they never did a again. They never did a California, even let alone Bay Area sports hmm. subsite. I don't know what it is. I think it's because people in California don't care about sports. I think that's probably actually the the, the fact uh, <laughs> per capita. Like some of us care about it, but most of us don't. Have you looked at the uh, the MLB app for Apple TV recently, like in the preseason? Uh, no, I haven't. Um, it has regressed in some so <laughs> very disappointing ways. I think, and this is because people ask, you know, they probably ask you this. They definitely ask me this because I write, I've written about it, that app a bunch, and I went to, I actually went to New York and and met those guys, um, which was really cool to go to the MLB Advanced Media offices. Um, yeah, and uh, they're good good guys. They love the Apple platforms. They they've got a great team of developers. Um, they were really happy about the new Apple TV because the. If you ever did you ever see their PlayStation app? No. Oh, it was amazing. It was better. I think maybe the Xbox One app is like this now, but there was a, a period in there where the PlayStation app was the MLB app. Like it had um you could see the metadata that they would drop in of like when there was a hit or when there was a homer or when there was a run and you could use the, you know, PlayStation controller to like jump, jump to the next scoring play. Um, just incredible amounts of data. It was it was way more complex than anything I've seen on any other platform. Um, so I, I knew they were going to be excited about the Apple TV because they were they would be able to build an app instead of just sort of like a list of streams. All right. But the problem with the MLB stuff is they make these press releases for spring training, but in reality, their ship date is like the first day of the season. So I I, I, I am reluctant to write about their apps during um, spring training because they're. You know, first off, the like data that's being collected and the video that's being generated is not of it's like substandard quality because it's not the regular season. So that's that's a big part of it. And uh, and I do think they're like they're busy doing the app version that's going to release on opening day. And that's the one to write about because, um, you know, I bet that it's yeah, what they've got on the Apple TV right now, what they've got on the iPad right now. It's like, yeah, it's OK, but it's like spring training mode. I, I feel like there's always a better version that that drops at the end of March. I I think so. I hope so. I think though that it, in this particular case, I think that they might be sort of. Well, I was going to say behind the eight ball, but I might be mixing metaphors. But um, I feel like the platform changes are so significant that I, I think they'll get there eventually. Because, like you said, it's a phenomenal team and they really do care. Um, but at the moment, it's it's really kind of weird how it's like worse than the old Apple TV app. Yeah, that's not um, good. That's not good. Like the the big one is that you can't decide like if you let's say you start to watch a game after it started, it but it's on. Like the game started at 7 and you start watching at 8. You don't even get the choice anymore of whether you want to start from the beginning or watch live. Mm -hmm. It just it just sort of streams and puts you like, you know, 30 seconds behind live. 
Well, that's not good. No, they need but to. But I'm sure they'll get to the bottom. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure they will. Um, you, you are. So you're a Yankee fan in Philly. So right. you're out so of market. I'm very lucky. Right. They. So there was this big class action lawsuit um, about uh, a lot of things involving sports leagues and video and in in out of market video and stuff like that. And it, it's it's uh it, things are are changing starting this year and one of the things that they changed is that they're offering like a one team in market streaming package would you buy that instead of the everything it's like you could say 40 bucks or 30 bucks and and just get yankees games or would you do you want the whole spread or do you buy the package do you buy the MLB i do buy streaming? the package yeah, no I, I definitely buy it um and it's lucky and for those of you who aren't sports fans it's you know well, you got to listen to some sports talk on this show but the gist of the, the in market thing is uh, and it sounds crazy, but if you're not a sports fan, you you might think it's super crazy. Is that <laughs> like if you live in the home market of a team? So let's say for me that would be the Philadelphia Phillies. Um, you can't stream their games right. home or away because the idea is you're supposed to pay for cable to get the channel on cable that pays to carry their games right. locally but if you can pay mlb what is it like 120 a year well Ooh. so part of the the settlement of the lawsuit it's it's 100 this year huh so for 100 bucks you can um get the mlb thing and you can watch every game except for the ones yeah. that yeah. that are local to you yeah but they definitely you know and i'm sure that there's ways around it with the uh, uh, vpns and stuff like that but it's tough um, on iOS though because iOS has location services. So it, right. it, if you've got location services turned on, um, it's easier on a Mac to fake where you are in the world, but it's harder right. on an iPhone or an iPad. Right. Like the one time I was out, I remember it was like two years ago. Uh, I think it was two years ago. The Yankees were playing the Oakland Athletics, and I was uh, out for WWDC, and I wanted to pop the game on my iPhone, and they were like, "You can't watch it." And I'm like, "Oh, you must have the wrong location for me." And I'm like, "Oh, wait." Yeah. No, you have you have the right location for me. It's it's an A's game. It's 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 one of those. I mean, this is not just a sports conversation because it's about like how technology is totally swamping the, um, the the entertainment industry. That this is like a TV industry problem. And how do you protect? I mean, and it's very easy to say, well, people are cutting the cord. You just have to deal with it. It's stupid that they're not offering it. But like, if you look at the deal the Dodgers signed, uh, their cable deal in LA is worth like $30 billion or something like that. It's insane. It, it, it is an amazing amount of money. And why is it that much money? The answer is because the cable company figures that if they control the Dodgers TV rights, Dodger fans in LA can't cut the cord because right. they, they have, and that's why it's worth as much as it is, is, is because of that, which, you know, but at some point, um, I don't know what happens. At some point, cable uh, goes down to the point where they're going to have to try to find another way to make money. Um, the, one of the things about this um, this shift that's happening with that that uh, the, the the class action settlement is um, in parallel. They're they're making deals with local cable companies. So um, what's interesting about that is it means that if if you have a cable login, so this is not for cord cutters, but like I used to work in downtown San Francisco, two blocks from the Giants ballpark, and I pay for cable. And and yet I couldn't sit in my office and watch the Giants game that was happening because I was in the local market, even though I could watch it at home or I could use like a sling box to watch it. And that's changing. They made a deal with most, but not all. It's like 22 teams now where if you've got a cable login, um, you can you can watch the game, even even if it's a local game, you can watch it, and that that seems to be the next frontier for streaming is going to be everything is unlocked if you're paying for cable in some form. 
Yeah, the weird thing, one of the weird things is that you don't see the commercials, or at least not the standard. Right. You know, sometimes they sell other commercials, but usually the, in, the space between innings is just dead air. And they're like, you know, in between innings or something like that, you know, stand by, right. the game will come back. And I had the idea years ago, and, I, you know, every time this has ever come up on the podcast, people write in and they say, why don't they just show the commercials? If the yeah. way they make money is to sell commercials just show the same commercials to the people watching live but it's what you said which is that the cable companies see it as a reason to get cable it's more than just the commercials yeah they make they make their money on cable subscriptions not the commercials are a bonus it's just like you know you pay for a magazine subscription back in the day but it still had ads in yeah. the magazine it's the you get money from both both streams come in and that's how you fund whatever you're doing and and so i do wonder if part of the deal of showing local uh, channels in local to people who are local cable subscribers is that they have to set up like a feed where you're sh you're seeing the local ads um because they probably do want that's probably one of the sticking points of the deal right is they've they've guaranteed their advertisers this coverage and that you know so that might be but that's a technical thing where you know you know the fox sports southwest has to feed the diamondbacks games uh to mlb advanced media it's probably yeah. i mean they're doing it anyway but they probably feed a version with commercials to them or something it's technical probably more than anything else but that's why this is all complicated for all this stuff is it's there are contracts, and there's big money, and there's technical limitations. And in, 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 as tech people, we think, well, we can, we can solve this. <laughs> we can solve this technologically. And then you realize, oh, it's not the, tech is not the problem. Like MLB Advanced Media is like one of the most advanced uh, streaming media organizations in the world, maybe the most. They do so much for other people that people don't know about. They're, they're streaming the HBO Now service. Right. They've done CBS's sports stuff. I think they do ESPN stuff. I mean, they are a, a very good at what they do. Technical is not the problem. The problem is contracts that still exist and money where, yeah. you know, if, if a cable company in LA is going to pay $30 billion for, for 30 years or 20 years or whatever of uh, of rights to the Dodgers then it's kind of hard to walk away from that if you're you know if you're major league baseball even if it does shut out cord cutters cuz that's a lot of money. Yeah, and remember that 2 years ago when HBO tried to do their own thing with HBO Go um it when the Game of Thrones premiere yeah. came out it completely collapsed and they were <laughs> they were literally reduced to asking people, "Hey, why don't you wait a day?" They, they got ri they got rid of the guy too. I mean, that's the most uh, right. shocking thing. Is the story is that that their CTO was building this streaming infrastructure on the inside of HBO, and um, he, and they were like, "Well, yeah, but we're we're talking to Major League Baseball, and we could use them." And he's like, "No, no, 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 we're going to do it." And then there was that one day where they like they announced they were going to go with Major League Baseball, and that right. guy was leaving the company. <laughs> and was like, right. Wow! And then and then last year with when they had the uh, the MLB Advanced Media backed streaming system that was apparently seamless. I mean, Rock maybe solid, not. yeah. I mean, I guess it's never perfect for everybody, but even cable's not perfect mm -hmm. for everybody. Um, the other weird thing on this, well, weird for me because as a Yankees fan, but it's it's a lot of the preseason coverage is the fact that Comcast still doesn't have, they dropped the Yes Network, which is the Yankees Entertainments and Sports Network, right. that carries like uh, like at least 150 out of the 162 games a year. There's like 12 that are on Fox, maybe a couple more than that because there's some on ESPN, but 140-some games at, at least a year. Um, and Comcast dropped them in November and still hasn't picked them back up so at this at you know at least as of this recording friday march 25th the 
Yankees aren't going to be on TV if you're in New York, if you have cable. Oh, so that's actually a very similar uh, situation to what's happened in L.A. For people who don't know, like L.A., Time Warner Cable has had uh, this Dodgers deal, and they have not been able to come to agreement with the other cable company or satellite providers that serve people in L.A. So there's a tiny percentage of people in L.A. who are able to see the bulk of the Dodger games on TV. And I think that's still not worked out, although I, I, I read somewhere that that was going to be worked out. But... Um, it's kind of awful, but this is, you know, it's like a, I talk about this. So I do every week I do a podcast with Tim Goodman from The Hollywood Reporter, and we talk about this right. same thing a lot because it's transforming all entertainment. Uh, all TV is is doing this, and it's like a death spiral. I mean, they don't know where this is going. They are desperately paying money to try and hold on or or mitigate how far the fall is, how fast it is. I mean... And so you end up in these situations where it makes no sense that the people of Los Angeles and New York can't see these baseball teams on their TV set. And yet, <laughs> this, right. this is where we are because they are because there are bigger issues like the entire future of their industry that they feel are at play. Yeah. And I, I it seems like it would only be fair if like Comcast doesn't have the Yankees and you're a Comcast comp- customer that you should be able to get the MLB app right. package you know but it doesn't work that way. no i think you're just blocked out which would that would drive me nuts i don't know i mean this i i and it's it, like a lot of negotiations you know when there's a, when there really is a hard deadline which is opening day which is a week away i mean i wouldn't be surprised if a deal gets hammered out in the next week but it, it just seems you know I, I don't know yeah it's like but like i said it's dominating the preseason talk about the Yankees because everybody's panicked that they're not going to be able to watch oh. the games. Well, and and um, some of the problems with this, I mean, this goes to business models like on the web and, and everywhere else, which is getting people to pay for a premium service is great, but it's not the same as having everybody have it, right? You lose this whole layer of casual fans in the case of baseball who are going to flip on a game and watch it from time to time but they're not going to ever pay a hundred dollars a year to do that right and so and 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 that's why they don't that's why you know time warner cable in la is not going to create a dodger fan package for everybody who isn't a time (laughs) Time warner cable customer to pay them ten dollars or twenty dollars a month to watch the dodgers because that's not their end game they want they want to cut a deal with comcast or whoever who who will pay them uh, you know a few dollars off of the bill of every single subscriber and then it goes everywhere it's like um i have a friend who's a a cricket fan and he's in canada and he he watches all these like indian cricket league matches and i i I was like oh well that's interesting i could check that out you can't get it in the u.s well you can but it's priced for the hardcore fan they've gone the other way where it's like you can't be a casual fan of that thing in america of cricket because there are there is a small group of people who love it and will pay like a hundred dollars to see one cricket tournament or whatever they call them and uh and and that's what they're going for and, you know, baseball doesn't want to do that. They want to be, these are mainstream sports. They want to make the deal where they get a huge amount of money and it's available to everybody. Um, and uh, it makes me wonder about the future of, of of broad appeal stuff if everything is a la carte. Because there's a lot of stuff that you're willing to watch if it's on, but are you willing to pay for it? <laughs> That's very true. Um all right, let's as good a time as any to take a break and thank our first sponsor. It's our old friends at Backblaze. You guys know Backblaze. Online backup for uh, your Mac. It also works on a PC. Uh, I haven't tried it on a PC because I don't have one, but on a Mac, this is what I would recommend. Even if they don't, we're not sponsoring the show. If you said, what should I do to backup my, my computer? I would tell you to have a system where you back up locally. 
back up, you know, use time machine, maybe use, I use super duper, make a, keep a clone of my startup drive. Um, but have something that is outside your office, out of your house, something offsite, just in case disaster strikes. Uh, somebody breaks in, steals your computer, water damage, like something leaks over your desk, gets all over your computer, ruins everything. Who knows? Anything like that could happen. If you have an offsite backup, you don't lose all of your data. Um, this, this, these guys are great. They're former, the, the Mac version is written by former Apple engineers. It runs natively on your Mac. You'll never notice it. You don't have to put Java on your computer or anything like that. It's just native Mac OS X code. You'll never even notice that it's running. You just install it. Uh, you get a free trial at backblaze.com slash daring fireball. You can start with a free trial, no credit card, no risk. Just try it. See how easy it is, how seamless it is. And then when you're ready to go, it's an amazing deal. Um, it's just five bucks a month per computer and it's unlimited. There's no limit to how much data. The only limit on the data is how long it takes for you to do your first backup before it goes incremental after that. Um, you don't pay more if you have a lot of data. It's just five bucks per com- per Mac for unlimited backup. Uh, I've said it before. I'll say it again. Someday, I hope that these guys stop sponsoring the show because everybody who listens to the show has signed up for it and has got their family members be- signed up for it too and everything backed up to Backblaze. Um, uh, and I'll just reiterate, you, you, you can restore one file at a time. Go to the website, find the file you want, get it. If you want to get everything back, you can order a USB hard drive. They'll put everything onto a, a hard drive and FedEx, FedEx it to you. So whether you need everything or whether you just need one file, Backblaze works. So go to backblaze.com slash daringfireball and, and sign up now if you haven't. Uh, I guess we should start with the uh, with the event, right? We could start with the event, then talk about uh, the actual devices. Yeah, I mean that seems like a good place to start. That's uh, everybody. So many. I say everybody, but so many complaints that it was. Oh, this is a boring event. Why did they have an event? I kind of more I think about it, the, I think an event like this week's is actually more interesting if you're like an Apple nerd than hmm. the bigger ones because I feel like it's a little bit more uh, revealing. It's and you know. For example, just for example, like Jaws' segment, like how do you introduce a phone that has no, nothing new about it? It's a, <laughs> it's a dis- well, think about it, though. It's a design that we've seen before. Okay, so rose gold is new, but we have seen rose gold before. Uh, and all of the stuff that's in the phone, the A9 processor, the camera from the uh, iPhone 6S, um, uh, being able to do Apple Pay with the Touch ID sensor, we've seen it all before. So how do you how do you spend ten or fifteen minutes on stage talking about a phone that that all the everything I just said about is true? And yeah, we saw and it. Literally nothing nothing new about that product other than the mixture of it. But uh, you're right. The the broad mainstream wants to see something like totally new, blowing you away from Apple every single time, which is unrealistic. But that's why you always get the disappointing event every every time. Every time there's an Apple event, people say it's disappointing because that's right. just unless it's the new iPhone, like the original iPhone or the original iPad, right. it's, it's just not going to be exciting. But for us, you're right. You know, it becomes about like how does Apple communicate something like the iPhone SE, and what is their positioning? Like, why would would you do that? Why would you do something? Because although there's no parts in it that are that are new, it is uh it is the first time they've ever done a product like this. So it is new strategy wise. And so right. if, we, if we exactly. care about strategy, then it's actually really interesting. 
Right. And I feel like that's a little bit, in a way, it's more interesting for us as the, you know, like I always say, Kremlinologists yeah. to sort of parse out what they're doing with this. Whereas if they had something altogether new, that, that like a totally top secret thing to make the iPhone only two millimeters thick, like ridiculously thin, it's really just like a piece of glass. It looks like the phone from Looper. Um, well, that sells itself, right? It's like, that's not hard to pitch because you've got this thing that's like, oh my God, just look at it. I can't believe they made that. Whereas this is a lot more strategic. And it is, it's, it is this, like, for example, this is the first time they've made a third phone from a, a, an industrial design, right? There was the iPhone 5, then the 5S, and now the new one, the SE, is used, it's the first time they've reused a design for the third time, uh -huh. a physical design. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could you could argue the five C is is close to the design of the others, right? It's just the back the back plate is kind of different, but but yeah, it's I guess it's a classic now. I mean, if you think about it, the yeah the four is the five is just an elongated four in a lot of ways. So that's a that's a design that has been with us for a very long time, and uh, well, that, but similar, but not as similar as this, where you could oh, if you took the. If you took the white one, I mean, that yeah. space black is different because they changed the color with the 5 and 5S. Five uh -huh. But I think if you took the white one with the regular aluminum back, you would really have to get close to be able to yes. tell a 5S five, five yeah, they're, they're, SE apart. They're dead ringers. I mean, I, I brought a 5S with me <laughs> to the event thinking yes. this, this would be like this. And I took some pictures. And, I mean, they're dead ringers. They, they fit in the same cases. The chamfer is matte instead of shiny. Uh, okay, the like the printing on the back is different, and the Apple on the back is different because it's I think screen printed in some way on the 5S, and it's like a stainless steel cutout, like um, like the modern phones right. on the on the on the new one on the SE. But otherwise, I mean, they are it's the same phone. It's not a it's not a rethink of what that phone should be like. It is the old design with new insides. Yeah, I sort of I think in in a sense it to me makes it the it's like the all-time best iPhone design because it's the only one that got a third a third go around. <laughs> yeah, I think I think maybe you're right. I I have a soft spot for the original iPhone design. I was saying to somebody the other day that I feel like the original iPhone is both my favorite design and also has some of the worst design elements in it of any iPhone, but um I I do I kind of like how how rounded the that original iPhone is, yeah. but um, but the five design is great, and I, I like it a lot. I saw somebody on Twitter was asking for an, an iPhone SE case that is as close as possible to the original iPhone. Like it would have <laughs> to be longer, obviously, because the screen's longer. But that was a good design too. It was, it was. Although I, I laugh at it now because I've got one here, and I look at it every now and then when a new iPhone comes out. It's like the some of it is really beautiful, and then there's like the chrome because it's got like that soft, br like the brushed aluminum back, but the front has got the shiny chrome frame, and I'm like, wow, that's not. I mean, they would not have ever done that after that. It was, but that was what no. they did. You could see they were just getting their their feet wet. They were learning at that point. I feel like they've come so far in terms of how they fit pieces together in that in in all, across all of their devices really like if you look back and think to like the the titanium power book which was sort of the forebearer of all modern power books and macbooks i mean and, mm -hmm. and, and i mean it was even made of a different material they didn't get to aluminum yet and, and there were a lot of problems with titanium with the flaking off of the coating and but the the big difference to me was that there were little plastic pieces across all of the seams. Like they couldn't just make a corner out of titanium. It it all needed to be sealed up with a plastic corner. And the original iPhone was sort of like that too, where they needed like a 
like a piece, like literally, it was like a piece of chrome around the display yeah. between the display and the aluminum. And they had the, like the black cut out at the at the bottom. That was right. I mean, it was just a, that was what they needed to do to assemble the thing. And then the and then the next generation phones were the well, what if we just have a big polycarbonate back? And and then with the four was like, all right, we figured out how to do this, and everything comes from that. Just like you're right, the titanium power book, every MacBook has looked like that since then. I mean, within. Yeah, it, they've all essentially. You could tell they're all of a kind. That was the moment where they went from being like black and brown plastic to, to being that right. that silver laptop that we know now. Right. I mean, and just in little ways. I mean, if you compare, if we're going to go down memory lane and compare it to the original iPhone, you could just see how the whole industry, not just Apple, has come so far in fifteen years or so of like wireless, where wireless stuff used to always have like an actual antenna. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I remember seeing like. Uh, palm trios oh, yeah. where there'd be like an actual antenna up in the upper right corner. I had one of those. Yeah, it and, absolutely did. And everybody just accepted it because it was amazing. You know, I'm talking on the phone and I'm not connected to any wires. Of course, there's got to be an antenna. And then, you know, to go to come so far where, where like in 2007, we complained about the black plastic on the back of the iPhone because it would, needed to be plastic to get the antenna signals through. And it's hmm. <laughs> we complained about that just because it didn't look great. Yeah, they, it's well. It's it's kind of hard to think that it's been less than ten years, and um, the whole industry. I mean, this has been talked about a lot. That it's not just how much better people have gotten at phones, which is absolutely true. Everybody has gotten better at phones, but the the drive to make smartphones and the miniaturization of of all this tech has led to all of these other spin off devices. Because once you build these tiny computers. You could do all sorts of other stuff with them too, and it's less than ten years. That's I was on some podcast where I said that I thought that uh, in the end the the smartphone, the computer era would be seen as a footnote to the smartphone era. That that was yeah. like remember when we first made computers, you couldn't put them in your pocket, as opposed to how we think of it now, which is oh now you can put a computer in your pocket. It's like I don't think in 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 terms of history that's how we're going to think about it. It's like it's already in less than ten years changed so much about how people interact uh, all around the world that you know that that's and and has driven so much new technology. Yeah, totally. Um, all right. Back to the event. So here's a, here's a question. Let's go through. I, I have my notes now. I have, let's go through it in order. So right. Cook, Tim Cook comes out and starts with uh, well, there's the forty sec forty years and forty seconds thing, which was delightful. Mm -hmm. um, uh, included a Newton joke. Uh, people forget that. I mean, or people don't know that 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 crossing out the Newton wasn't just malicious. That was the that was the actual pen stroke you used to erase a word. I didn't notice that they actually went to that detail. I did not notice that. Oh yeah, it's the it's that little up and down zigzag right. across the word, and then what they didn't they didn't have time to have the little puff of smoke. Right. But that's I mean that was the Newton gesture for that. So that that's was right, that was deep, deep knowledge by whoever made that video. With a little bit of love. Yeah. Um. And then he came out and he addressed the uh, as we say the elephant in the room, which was that at the time on Monday, oh. Apple's pending court case against the FBI the next day. Um, and I thought he spoke very well on it, and that yeah, he's spoken well on it ever since this this issue started in early February. But I feel like he's he's gotten it down to mm -hmm. a much more compelling. Uh, argument and he's like for example like earlier like a few weeks ago he was comparing the creation of government os to he, he analogized it to cancer um 
and I think I know where he was going with that, but he's dropped that analogy, and I think it's for the best yeah. that he did because it doesn't hold up as well. Uh, and the main reason I think is because cancer isn't man-made. It's you know it's a this. I mean, there's man-made causes that you can lead you to get it, but it's you know the fact that it exists is an unfortunate aspect of nature and our biology. Right. Um, uh, I think it's if you're going to go that route, it's a little bit more like asking a company to man, you know requiring a, a company to manufacture chemical weapons. But that's an analogy that I don't think he wants to use. I think it's a better analogy, but I don't think you want to use it because yeah. it's it's too unpleasant. Um, I thought that the thing that he said that really was the way that I think that this should go is when he said that we see our we even see our phones as an extension of ourselves, and that to me is the that's the angle that the and I know that the case this particular case has been dropped, but the issue is definitely not going to go away, and I feel like that's the angle to go toward in terms of yes, we are actually building warrant resistant phones yeah you um you did a you had a, a post and a link that i thought was really great that was um calling somebody on this argument like do we dare create a warrant proof space do we dare do that a place where warrants can't reach and the point the point that you linked to is that somebody said was our our minds are a warrant-proof place. The concept of a, a place that is, and historically, there have been other places that are essentially warrant-proof. But certainly, our our minds are ours, and uh, the the information in them is not subject to a warrant. And I think that I, I thought the same thing when he said that. That this is this is the one of the key par parts of Apple's argument is our phones are extensions of ourselves. There are there are not even backup brains. They're part of our brains. They um, are where we keep information so we don't have to store it in our brains. It makes life better that way. This is how people live in the 21st century. And therefore, protecting that is an extension of the protection that we've got essentially against self-incrimination. This is part of our uh, this is part of our mind. And if if the math means that the technology exists to lock something up and nobody can get to it, uh, then we perhaps we're all best off considering it that considering it the extension of a warrant-proof space that already exists in our mind. So I definitely, you know, he didn't go into it beyond just saying it's an right. extension of ourselves. But you know, you you and I had the same thought, which is right. you read between the lines there, and that is what Apple is saying is you can't pry it out of our head. And my phone is part of my head. It is it is it is who I am. And um, if I can make it so that you can't see what's in there, um, then that's okay. That's part of that's part of the deal. Yeah. Um, and then <laughs> the FBI called a never mind. Never mind. <laughs> well, you saw those the the legal analysis again. We're not lawyers, but you saw the legal analysis uh, over the weekend and the, the past week, which was sort of like. This isn't looking good for the FBI. Like right. there, there's so many reasons that this that this is uh, that Apple seems to have the advantage here, and the tide seemed to turn. I think even publicly, the I think the FBI thought this was a slam dunk. You know, I yeah. think they they thought that they were going to be able to do this, and Apple was going to roll over, and the people were going to be on their side because they're talking about terrorism and protecting a terrorist phone and all of these things. And then the tide starts to turn. Their legal footing is is kind of uh, not as solid as they thought it would be. Um, and then, so all of a sudden, they say, "Well, we found another way, so never mind." Which, even that excuse is terrible because they basically said, "No, no, no, there is no other way. We've searched right. everywhere," and everybody went, "Really?" 
and then they're like never mind um it's hard not to look at that and say that the, the political calculation either they made it that this wasn't a good time to do this or somebody else in the executive branch was like <clears throat> yeah don't don't just just don't right or or go talk to the nsa or what whatever it was but something happened figure out as graceful a way as possible (laughs) to get out of this even if it's actually not graceful at all yeah uh yeah and i think that it 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 backfired on the fbi in two ways is i kind of i kind of get the feeling that they maybe never thought that this would go to actual trial but they thought it would be the other way that the and that public opinion would t- would go against apple so overwhelmingly that okay apple thinks they want to fight this but we'll you know we'll turn up the temperature on the terrorism dial and they'll they'll find out otherwise and that didn't happen like and and it certainly is not the case that the public was overwhelmingly in apple's favor no. but it was close to 50-50 and from the polls that i did see you know it seemed like it was slowly moving in apple's favor it certainly wasn't backfiring on apple and i think that the fbi wasn't prepared for that and then the fbi looked at the what their legal arguments were and were like shit if we go to (laughs) if we go to trial this does not look good so what i and the other thing that they did that was sort of like um just dancing around and and you know changing their mind it was like three or like friday or thursday or friday but three or four days before it was supposed to go to trial, they changed. They they said we would like this to be an evidentiary hearing where we call witnesses. Um, which you know it's not like that's unusual in and of itself, but it's unusual to do you know request it at the last minute. And I, I my theory, and again I'm just making this up. I don't have any information to back it up. But my guess is that they they looked at the legal argument, and said we're kind of screwed. Maybe if we call some witnesses, we can make this a little bit less about the facts and a little bit more like an emotional appeal, you know, a, a gut appeal to, you know, we're trying to fight ter- terrorism here. Um, and then I think they realized over the weekend that that really, you know, when they thought about it, that really wasn't going to work either. Yeah. I think it is a, a combination of the law and the optics that happened to them. Um, the optics, you're, you're exactly right. I think they expected that the people would be mixed on this and then when they heard about the details of apple withholding information from a terrorist that the public would swing to their side and it didn't do that it was the reverse of that that people learned more about this issue and started to understand why apple was fighting it so i think they miscalculated and then yeah they apple brings in ted olson right (laughs) i mean apple like lawyered up to to fight this as far as possible and you know, I, I think you put those two together and, and there's a and, and they always had to have the knowledge that there was even if they didn't know there were zero day exploits that they could probably use. Um, I'm sure they I'm sure they knew that they could find one if they wanted. It was like in their back pocket a little bit. And so that was the, the escape hatches. Oh, oh, we think let's put this on hold because it's not dismissed. It's just on hold for now. Um, yeah. But I, I yeah, it seems like it's it seems like it's over. I and the one thing I noticed, and it's it it really I I don't think you can overstate how much Apple is truly standing on principle here, it, it, and that it's you know whether you think it's good marketing or not, and I, I think that Apple really bristled at that accusation from the FBI that they were doing this for marketing purposes because it's so it, it whether it helps them in marketing or not is beside the point. They truly at, and obviously I think from you know starting at the very top with Tim Cook right on down really see it as a matter of principle yeah. and and 
the reason it's a little unusual to see a company do something like that is that you could see it in the polling that that their negatives, as they say in politics, have gone way up. Like it was like before this, like the last time the same polling group had it, it was like you know how many people have an unfavorable opinion of Apple, and it was like eight percent, and it's probably just a bunch of you know it's like the people who hate the Mac. Right, right. It's the people who get into Mac versus PC flame wars on on the internet. Um, but like as of like last week, it was up to like twenty one percent or something like that. So like the number of people in the United States with an unfavorable opinion of Apple like more than doubled, almost tripled, um, just because of this issue. Just because of the very you know and and thinking about it in very broad terms, Apple is spitefully not helping the FBI unlock a phone that belongs to terrorists. Um, and that's just like this, that's the sort of PR that companies, you know, for good reason don't want. Yeah. That's the worst, the worst PR, right? The easiest thing to do is go along like the, like all the phone companies did. And like a lot of tech companies have done, which is just go along, keep it quiet. Don't talk about the tap that you put in for the government. Don't talk about this, you know, this work you do or this loophole that you've got, um, that that's certainly the best, right? Because then it's like nobody talks about it. Uh, you you risk having something like what happened with AT and T blow up, where it's revealed that there's this warrantless wiretapping going on in your telecom center. You, there there are risks there, but um, but still, yeah, Apple's putting itself out there, and they know they're going to get portrayed by the United States government <laughs> of all places, the law and order wing of the United States government, as being on the side of terrorism essentially i mean there's a senator who stood in the senate and declared that apple was on the side of isis right i mean this is bad pr (laughs) but i do think i do think that they they're principled and when we talk about this whole section of the of the keynote or the the media event not just tim cook but uh when we went on to talk about the health stuff and about the environment stuff too um you know it is a pr calculation it's a media event it is always going to be a pr calculation but i do believe that it's also a uh, a cultural thing at apple that they, they do, i i don't believe they just do this for good pr this is part of who they are and the philosophy they have about uh, about their products and how they're used yeah i think that the environment thing is a perfect example of that because however many people care about it i really think that the the number of iPhones and iPads that they sell because Apple has a good stance toward the environment is like, you know, you could, one person could carry them upstairs. You know what I mean? It's not, there are not very many people who are making their decision on what to buy based on the environmental policies of the company. It's, you know, I think Lisa Jackson even said it, that you can feel good about Apple's environment it's it's a way to make you feel good about it but it's not it's not going to sell it and you can't help but think that it's costing them a significant amount of money yeah yeah i i think i think so but they they've been this is one of those funny cases where i feel like they turned the corner too that they got rebuked by greenpeace like 10 years ago and and within a year or two they started putting up that that slide that is on every product launch now which is the green checklist right um, which you know they don't have to do that. They really don't have to do it now when they always just check all the boxes. But they they 
they have done a lot to make their products more recyclable and less less toxic. And now they're doing things where they're, you know, they're buying electricity. It's not all like, it's not as if like they've got solar panels on all their buildings and all their buildings. Some of it is like there's a huge solar farm in uh, Central California that they basically bought and said, we want all the power from this. Uh, but they, they want to they wanna say that and they want to talk about that. And that is... You know, I again, I think it's good PR because it says we care, but I also think that they do actually care. Yeah, and um, the other thing worth noting, I mean, it's I, I, but Lisa Jackson being on stage is noteworthy because a she's never been on stage at an event before, and b, um, you know, in the last few years there's been a growing awareness that uh, most of the people Apple puts up on stage are white men. Yep, and anything anybody who's, uh, you know, can broaden the um, diversity of the people who are on stage, uh, it's a good thing in multiple ways. But it's you know, I brought it up with Phil Schiller when he was on the show at WWDC, and and he made the point, which is exactly what I suspected is true, is that um, it, it's not like they pick people to do, you know, like, here's who's going to do this. It's people who are responsible for the thing that they're pitching who do it, right? Like, so when JAWS comes up to do the iPhone SE, it JAWS is it not just a person who does, you know, who does product marketing. He's product marketing for iPhone. Yeah. And so the fact that Lisa Jackson was on stage, she wasn't going to come out on stage to talk about the iPhone SE. It's because she's literally in charge of Apple's environmental policy. Yeah, I th- I do think they're they're definitely making an attempt. I it, it it seems to me that they're asking the question like how can we how can we better uh you know reflect diversity on stage and in videos and all those things and they're they are not close to being um sort of what you see from a Google event or even a Microsoft event, but uh they're you can see that they're working on getting better. Um, I noticed not just Lisa Jackson, but uh, in the videos, there were uh, there were uh, two videos featuring uh, Apple employees, um, and one of them, a video was narrated by uh, an Apple product manager who is Asian, and there was mm. one that was that featured one of the health videos featured a, 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 an Apple employee who is an Indian woman, and so I, I did notice like the people in the people in, not and not just like the kids in the health study and all that, but the, like the representatives of Apple in those videos were people we hadn't seen before, voices we hadn't heard before, and who do show some more of the diversity that is in existence at Apple, and. You know, what I read that is that they're making an effort and uh, it's not like, I mean, it's not like there's an incredibly uh, diverse group on stage and that Apple's totally turned the corner. I guess what I would say is that I think they're aware of the perception of it and are trying to take some steps. But, you know, they got they got more work to do. But it was uh, it was it's good to see new new people from Apple on stage. This is it's not just about Apple's diversity it's also like apple used to be the least diverse company in the world because there was literally like a guy who did almost everything publicly right steve jobs wanted to be the right. face of everything apple did and right you're saying they were the least diverse in terms of their public in terms of their public persona because right. it was one right. guy it was steve jobs right. was right. apple right and i think he cultivated that and he he was he was good at it so why not do it and i feel like apple's corporate culture is still uh continues to unwind and with katie cotton leaving and steve dowling taking over for in pr i i feel like there's still they're still unwinding out to be like 
lots of people are, are work at Apple and let's get those voices on stage. And it was it started with sort of a small group of people who we already knew who would pop up during Steve Jobs keynotes. And now it keeps widening. And um, and I, I expect it to keep doing that. But it's kind of funny that, you know, I, I really think they have they they are trying to change, but they have to change from a model where like nobody gets on stage except Steve and maybe right. a couple of lieutenants. And they don't I think they I think they know they need to not do that anymore. Yeah, and I don't think they're ever going to go the route of Google, who, like in a Google I.O. keynote, there might be 20 people who come on stage. I mean, right. maybe I'm exaggerating a little, but it's it's a lot. It's a lot of people coming out for a brief, you know, almost like individual features. You know, here's somebody else to, to do this. Um, and Apple's style of presentation is, isn't going to change because I think that they, you know, I think it works, yep. you know, and I think they believe it works. There's a certain style to an Apple show, you know, and it's it's fewer speakers coming out for longer segments, you know, and then maybe somebody, you know, like at WWC, there's a couple of things where they'll have somebody come out to do the demo. Right. And, and there's, you know, but it's just, it's just inherently a little different. Uh, the one thing with the Lisa Jackson thing, I didn't, comment on it I in my write-up on my thoughts and observations but one of the things that a couple of readers called me on and I have to say correctly so is it's a little disingenuous to um what I called her her segment out on is the that they pitched it as sort of like Apple is helping to save the climate Mm -hmm. and I think that's a little it's a little self uh centered because I don't really think Apple's footprint, as big as a company as they are, is single-handedly really going to move the dial on the overall climate of the planet. I think that they should pitch it more. I really do, because I think, and I think this is where it could help, is pitch it more as we're setting an example that we want all of our other fellow companies in the Fortune 500 to follow. We're showing that it's possible to be uh, 100% renewable. Um, why, is, why aren't other companies doing the same? Um, and I still believe that. But the other thing I didn't mention, and I did think about it, was that they, they're they're very uh, carefully omitting their supply chain yeah. from from their measurements, right? And I don't know; it would be interesting. I mean, I'll because that's one thing. Like Tim Cook is a numbers guy, so I'll bet that he you know has those numbers coming from Lisa Jackson's team, which is what's the what's the environmental footprint of of our supply chain. Um, and I would be interested to know how big that is compared to the rest of Apple's operations. One of the interesting things, um, and I've seen Ben Thompson write about this at Stratechery a little bit, um, and uh, Guy Ramez Nam, who uh, is a science fiction writer, but he also writes about uh, the future of renewable energies. He's written about it uh, a lot, that China is really changing um, to the point where China's path to renewable energy from coal, basically, is uh, it's rapid. It's happening rapid rapidly because um partially because their pollution is horrible um but uh it's interesting i wonder if there's a uh, there's something behind the scenes where they talk to their supply chain and and are leaning on them to do this because i i think there's opportunity in the grid uh in china knowing nothing about about the details of chinese uh, energy systems right. but the the country as a whole is adding huge amounts of renewables um, and is going to keep doing that for a long time to come. So I, I do wonder if that's happening in the background too. That maybe there's even a thought like, look, these guys are all going to be switching to, you know, or investing in, uh, you know, solar in China. And well, there are advantages to running an authoritarian 
government. I mean, right. you can you know, you can make the trains run on time a little easier. Yeah, well, and I I, I just don't know how they handle their grid and whether you can right. you can say like we're going to buy power here and we want the credit for that being our power, the the, the that wind farm that you built. Let's say that that's the Han Hai right. <laughs> wind farm and and that's that I mean that's the truth of a grid in general is that you're essentially buying offsets. I mean, when Apple when Apple puts um the uh the that that solar farm that's south of Monterey to to work um it's not like there's an apple campus right there that's wired to it it goes or, into, a, or a big cable one big yeah, yeah, one big thick power apple. cord like the uh uh john fogarty video yeah yeah right. you just plug it in and then you got it um no it goes into the grid and and then the electrons are in the grid and then they take but they get the credit for that generation so you know electricity is weird but they, they're they they're trying and i would imagine that the that the supply chain is probably going to get better just because i i get the impression that the energy mix in china is going to get better but yeah. you know who knows you're, you're you're right i'm sure tim cook knows <laughs> uh well they're conspicuously avoided mentioning it and you know i don't know i don't really blame them i think if you know if i was on their team i probably would have said yeah we don't want to this does not mention it yeah i but, think i think you're right though apple wants to be uh, I think it would be great if Apple was just more an example of like, look, this is yeah. how a big company can do this. And if you want to be a big company that can say, look, we're standing up and we're going to be 100% renewables by this date, you can do it because Apple did it. And he, and even say, like, here's what it cost us. Um, and it's realistic about how much it costs so that, it, you know, because that's one of the arguments always. It's like, well, we don't know. It's a mystery. And Apple could say, no, we know. And you can follow our lead. This is how much it'll cost you to do this. Yeah. So then the last part of the Lisa Jackson's part of the show was the introduction of Liam, the iPhone deconstructing robot, mm. um, which was kind of a surprise. I mean, because Apple doesn't really show you much behind the, you know, behind the stage ever. Right. And it's, it's sort of an interesting thing. My, and I wrote about it. Like, my thing is I can't help but wonder if they're the same people working on Liam, the deconstructing robot, are also working on uh, a sibling robot who puts phones together. Because mm. um, I, before we ever got a look at the, you know, and a Apple started publishing photos of, you know, like the, the inside of the Foxconn factories or assembly lines, I guess is a better way to put it. You know, like when Tim Cook started going there and there were photo ops and you could see it, 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 I shouldn't have been surprised, but like my gut feeling was that I thought it would be a lot more automated. And because there are things, you know, like like when you see like a car factory, an auto an auto factory, a lot of it is roboticized. Whereas yeah. putting these electronics together is largely a, at least today, is largely a a manual job. Yeah, I wonder, um, and I don't know whether that's something that does Apple do that, or does Apple talk to their manufacturers about doing that? Does Apple, re, you know, work with them and and say we want to reinvent how this, you know, how this goes on, um, so that the people working in the factories are supervising the robots rather than doing all the work themselves? Right. Um, that would certainly reduce the number of people working in the factories, which is certainly how the auto industry in the United States um, had problems. Uh, right, because you lost a lot of jobs that way. But I don't know. It's it would be it, it's fascinating to me because this is like this is a pe thing people have talked about the problems of recycling electronics for a long time. But I felt like there was never a drumbeat on it like there was about some other stuff. But this is definitely you know th this seems to be almost in the same class as some of the other tech that we know exists back in the back of the Apple Store. Where it's like right. it's in Apple's benefit to have a recycling program, and they refurbish phones, and they can disassemble the parts and reuse them. And um, how much of this is about 
being friendly to the earth and how much of this is about uh, like it good business sense to why not we why don't we reclaim all of these things and and put them back to use i i don't know it would be an interesting who who builds that who builds liam do you get a, a job as a, a an engineer at apple and then discover that rather than building like the new iphone you're building a device to take apart iphone 5s yeah maybe i guess so i i can't help but think that it was that it's an apple design machine yeah well they said it's in california so yeah uh, I, I assume so. Yeah. Um, pretty cool stuff. And then they gave uh, Mashable like a nice behind-the-scenes mm-hmm. look at it, which is another sign of the modern uh, yeah. new Apple. New Apple. Um, I also, before I guess before we move on, the other thing, too, and t- uh, Tim Cook, even I guess he mentioned it at the end, but that it's, you know, if everything goes according to schedule, this will be, that will be, that was the last event they're going to hold on campus. Right. Um, on, well, on, on that, on that campus. <laughs> <laughs> on that campus, right. Um, uh, and a couple of people, and I guess it's just I, I, I overlook how, how some of the things that I find obvious, but other people don't. But a couple of readers were like, did he just say that they're not going to release anything new this year? And the answer is no, 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 no. That's not the point. It's the the schedule that Apple's been on, the pattern that they've kind of centered on is really sort of a three public event a year schedule. Yeah. Something in March, which is what we just had. Um of varying, you know, importance depending on whether they have something majorly new to announce or or not. Uh, WWDC in middle of June, uh, which is probably mostly software based, but maybe that's what they'll hold the new MacBooks for. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if they, they'll either release these new MacBooks like with a press release between that's, now and WWDC, or hold them until WWDC. But that's my guess is that they'll a bunch of us will get a call saying, "Would you like to come yeah. for a briefing?" And they'll say, "We have new MacBooks, and here's the embargo, right. and the press release will go out, and that'll be it. like at the end of April or something, something like, like that." that yeah. Um, and then in September there will certainly be a major event, but they don't. It's because it's a major event; they're not going to hold it in their tiny little town hall. They're going to hold it like last year at the Bill Graham Auditorium, right? Or the or, Flint Center the year before that, or you know, or Yerba Buena or Moscone West sometimes. But they'll find a big venue somewhere for that huge. I don't think they've ever event. done Moscone West other than for MacWorld or WWDC. Have they not? I think they did. I think, I'm sure somebody out there is screaming at their right. car right now that they did. But my memory <laughs> is that they have done a single freestanding yeah. Moscone West event, but it, it's probably that is booked up. I think it, maybe right. it was just luck that there was some week right. where it wasn't booked where they could just drop in and do it. But And they right. also can't just do it for a day, right? Because we know Apple, they, they have days of prep to get right. the space exactly the way they want it. So they, they can't just right. rent it for a day. Right. I think I have my gut feeling is that that Yerba Buena is a thing in the past again because of size. Yeah. That if they're if it's they were fifty, it's not that much bigger than Town Hall. Yeah. It's and it's and it's a lot of um, custom prep work to get the hands-on area. Yeah, they built the that whole. They built a whole new hands-on thing the last time well, they, they were at Yerba Buena. The last time they did the Yerba Buena, they actually cut a hole in the wall. Yeah. They cut, They actually took a wall out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember asking. Uh, that's Apple. Yeah, <laughs> well, they build think... they build buildings essentially at uh, at Bill Graham and uh, at the Flint Center. I think Katie Cotton was still there at the time, mm. and I and I spoke to somebody there like at, towards the end, like as they were getting ready to kick us out of the hands on area, and I was like, "This is like insanely expensive because you guys have to like rebuild the wall." And she was like, "Yeah, we don't care." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's about right. Uh, let me take another break here before we move on into the next segment of Apple's event and thank our good friends, another longtime sponsor of the show. You guys know them. Squarespace. Squarespace is uh, it's the all-in-one place to host, 
design, customize, um, and build your own website. Uh, any kind of website, almost any website you could even imagine that you might want to start, you really ought to look at Squarespace first. Go to squarespace.com. Um, and the, you just cannot emphasize enough. You, stuff like podcasts, you can host a podcast at Squarespace. They even have like a custom audio player. They, they know what a podcast is. They can help you with that. You can host a blog. You have a store. You can you can build your own store there and they have all of the shopping stuff, all the SSL stuff, all the credit card taking stuff. Uh, all of it is built in and you just do it when you're customizing it. I, it is like using a design app. It is not like sitting there and doing code or, you know, moving little snippets of code around, although you can get into the code if you want to, but you literally just drag stuff around and it, it's exactly how web design should be. You just sit there and you're you're actually manipulating the actual website itself that you're logged into. It's not like there's an editing interface and a regular interface. When you're signed in and you it's your Squarespace account, you just sit there and you, you manipulate it in true what you see is what you get style because it's actually what you're moving is the actual website. Um, really just can't emphasize enough how easy that is. So my thanks to Squarespace. Go to squarespace.com and use the code Gruber, my last name, Gruber, and you will save 10% off your first order. Squarespace.com, offer code Gruber. So use that code and uh, you'll they'll know you came from uh, from the show. My thanks to Squarespace. If you have any kind of website that you may want to build, go there first and try it, and you'll you'll probably not even move on to anything else. My thanks to Squarespace. Uh, so then Jeff Williams comes out, and like I, I was sitting next to Matthew Panzerino in the, in the audience, <laughs> and when when Jeff Williams was done, and he was like, "Let me hand this off," you know, hand it back to Tim. I was like, I just whispered to Matthew. I was like, "Let me hand things off to my brother Tim." <laughs> it's uncanny how similar Jeff Williams and Tim Cook's mm-hmm. onstage demeanor is. It, it it I I can't believe more people don't don't comment on it. Yeah, they they uh, they seem similar. They're they're Tim is more polished, but Tim's had more time to be more polished. Yeah, but Jeff Williams is sort of like where where Tim Cook was when Tim was the COO for Steve Jobs and would occasionally come out on stage to talk about like how well the Mac is doing or something like that. Yeah, you know, one of the things we did so you know going into the town hall event, um, I had that realization like Friday that it's probably the last one, and I went I went to Stephen Hackett and I said, "Would you be interested in working with me on a piece like looking back at town hall?" And we and we we ended up he he replied with a list of YouTube videos of every town hall event since two thousand one. That's Stephen Hackett in a nutshell. Um, That's crazy. And I was looking at them, and it was a fun story to put together. We sort of split the work. I've been to all of them, so I had like little tidbits like when they took us upstairs to the dorm room the fake dorm room for the ipod hi-fi and i wasn't there for that oh no that was so that that was was, that was so weird um and there there were some others like that that were where i remember and the original ipod event i remember going for that but um uh, one of the funny things is that the xserve event which was in may 2002 has like super early tim cook and it's interesting to see how far we've come since early Tim Cook, who was explaining the sales strategy of the Xserve. <laughs> he's come a long way in the in the intervening fourteen years. Yeah, he's really it's it's it, 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 that the comparison to Jeff Williams is interesting because they they're it's just funny to me how similar they are. How much it would be so easily to believe that they were brothers. Um, 
But it's also an interesting contrast in terms, like you said, like how much more polished Tim Cook has gotten and how how really good he's gotten on stage. And I think he's, he's I think he's relaxed a little bit. I think he realizes he doesn't need to be Steve Jobs, right? Which is like, right. and I don't mean that in a you, know, you, know, you got to fill his shoes, but more like Steve set the template. Like you said, at these Apple events, Apple knows what it's doing. I wrote a piece on MacWorld a couple of weeks ago about how everybody does an Apple event now. Like Apple defined yeah. this corporate tech media event thing. But uh, if Steve's the template, then then even if Steve's gone there is a moment where you struggle of like, how do I, how do I do this? What's my way of doing it instead of sort of just reading Steve's lines for him. Um, and I feel like Tim Cook has gotten there now where it's, it's, it's an Apple event and it's always going to be, have the echoes of the Steve Jobs events, but he just seems more comfortable in his own skin on stage. He smiles a lot more. Um, that's the thing I kept taking pictures cause I, I, I do that at these Apple events and um, you know, he used to be kind of, serious and he would occasionally have like a super awkward grin that he would be like smile for the camera and he he just seems to i mean whether he's not like he could be completely uh torn up inside and terrified for all i know but on stage he's projecting what seems like completely legitimate happiness about being up there and so i i do feel like he's kind of completely uh, embraced his role now and knows what he knows who he is on stage and what his public persona is and has has uh, come to terms with it because he yeah I think he's come he's never he's going to be Tim Cook he's never going to be anything but that but he does feel like he's genuinely Tim Cook now yeah and I I couldn't say it better myself and I think that it's it it doesn't matter how naturally talented you are at anything you kind of have to do it for a little before you settle into it sure right it's like you know, I, I I knew how to write when I started Daring Fireball, but if you read the first few entries, you know, first year or two of Daring Fireball, there's a certain tone that's not it's not poorly written, but it's not it it's not right. You know, or when you look at the first few years of like any of your favorite comic strips, like Peanuts or even Calvin and Hobbes, it's like they're not the characters aren't quite drawn right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, sure. They're they're all off off model. I remember when I was a kid reading the Garfield books, and you start with book yes. one, and you're like, "What the hell is this? This is not Garfield." <laughs> right. It looks like a parody of Garfield yeah. or something. That's a that. Yeah. And then it settles in, you know. And then the natural, you know, it it. And I feel like you know Tim Cook's on stage persona is exactly like that, and he has settled in. Like saying that he's more comfortable or he's he's just more himself is exactly it. Um, and I used to say like before when when Steve Jobs was still around but you know when it you know for obvious reasons it was people were we were all speculating about what would happen post Steve Jobs and I used to say and I guess it's still true in theory that it's not necessarily it doesn't have to be the case that the CEO of Apple is the the spokesman right. for the company um and that you know Tim Cook could just be the CEO and Phil Schiller could run mm -hmm. the events um and in a way, I was—I think I was right, and in a way, I was wrong. Where I was right, insofar as that Tim Cook almost never sells sells the new products. He always hands off to somebody to actually pitch the products, mm -hmm. which is obviously the what you know Steve Jobs just did it all himself. But I do kind of feel like it's important that he's sort of the host of the show. There is yeah. a certain look. The the buck stops here. 
Right. This on, is my on, this is my company. This is why we're doing what we're doing. I I thought there would be less of him, honestly. I thought he would do that thing where he'd come up at the beginning and give the, you know, yeah. retail update and all that stuff that they right. didn't even do in this, but that that's yeah. like the company's business. And then hand it off and he did this for I think at least one event. Hand it off, essentially not come back until the end and come back on stage yeah. and so, say, "See, this is why we do what we do. Only Apple can do this. Thanks for being here. Goodbye." And that would be it. But yeah. he, his presence is he's much more like the glue that holds the thing together than I thought he yes. he and I don't think he needed he could have had Phil Schiller do that right but he, right. he he hasn't and he's done a good job at it yeah it's a little bit more like the host of the Oscars exactly right? where there certainly are you know you a lot of the Oscars show is you're some you know famous actor comes out to give the award for whatever so it's not like the host does it all but the host does glue every segment together and right. and I, exactly I feel exactly like you did I did not. I think we'd see as much of Tim Cook at events like this as we do, but it's, you know, it's all good. Yeah. Um, Jeff Williams, care kit. Sounds like a big deal. I, I don't know what to make of it though. You know, like it's, it, I'm not quite sure how that's going to work. I mean, it's just so far outside of the mainstream. I think I think the answer is going to be that in a year we're going to hear like we did about some of the health stuff in, in a year and the research kit stuff. We'll hear, Oh well, this is how CareKit is being used to help patients. But um, yeah. beyond that, I mean, it's it, unless you're what I what I hope is that we'll see something from somebody who covers like healthcare and uh, and and research and and medical stuff write a story or write stories about what's going on here with this because it's their area of expertise way more than it is than it is ours. I mean, I, I, I know some doctors <laughs> and I've talked to them about Apple stuff and they say, well, it looks cool, but unless you know somebody who's actually doing a research project that is using this tech, um, it's harder to get a, get a sense of, of what's going on. I think it's great that they're doing it. I, I, I think this comes back to those corporate values again, where Apple looks at these devices and says, we're making these devices and putting them in people's pockets and it, it can change their lives. Who's going to, you know, who's going to make the tools that make the the medical industry capable of, of doing this, it should be us. We're the platform owner. We should do this. And I, I, I think it's good that they're, that they're doing that, but I don't know how to judge it. Yeah. I thought it was pretty interesting because I just have a little bit of firsthand experience in the last few years uh, with surgery that the, 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 the thing he said, like you, you in the hospital and you have the best people possible who do this all day, every day and have, up to the minute knowledge dealing with every aspect of you, you know, everything you're hooked up to every way you're monitored, the timing of everything is all taken care of by truly expert professionals. And then when you're discharged, they give you this and it's just like a sheet of paper. Yeah. And it's, it, it's so funny. It was like not an exaggeration. Like when my finger, my eye, every, every little surgery I've had in the last few years, uh, that is, that's how they discharge you. They give you like a piece of paper and I do read them and I follow the instructions like religiously because I, you know, I want these, you know, I wanted my finger to actually work again. I would, you know, was hoping that I would be able to see out of my left eye again. But I can totally understand though how like a lot of people don't for whatever reason, you know, that they just don't think it's important mm -hmm. or, or whatever. Um, I wonder how much better putting it in, you know, getting it into your phone will be. I can see how it might be a lot better if you can get like, if you can automate the, hey, you know, you, you know, just like getting a text message, you get an alert, like without you having to manually set the alarm, if you could just get the alert that says it's time to, you know, take one of your uh, pills. Yeah, or check your blood pressure or your, your or your, uh, you know, anything right. like that, your blood oxygen count or whatever it is that they're, that they're looking for. 
Yeah, right. and and I mean that's the it's a little bit like all the fitness stuff, right? This is the flip side yeah. of the fitness yes. stuff. That's a that's I think that's exactly the model. Yeah. Cuz it's still it's still, you know, logging and motivation of da- personal data and the difference here is that somebody is monitoring it for you because they're concerned about your, you know, specific health issues rather than it just being sort of you saying how much how many steps did I do? How much did I run today? Right, or you know, but now if it's, you know, like a surgery like I had on my finger or somebody else might have on their knee or hip or something like that, you know, not just stand up, but it's time to do these stretching exercises. Right. Or, oh, I would or, totally I did some physical therapy and I totally um this is the podcast where old men talk about injuries. Um <laughs> I did some physical therapy on my shoulder and it was um always a challenge for me when I came back because they had a whole regimen down and they gave me like this sheet of paper with some exercises circled in this like really bad illustrations. And I, and I had done the exercises and I was like, how do I do that again? And it it sort of fell apart very quickly. And I did have that thought of like, um, you know, would it be, would it have been better if I had sat down with some app and put in like, a, a series of reminders or calendar events or something to get me to do this? And the answer is probably yes, but th- and that was my failure is that I just sort of like took the piece of paper and figured I'd get to it and I never did. Yeah. I also think, and I think it's, you know, we, we mentioned this earlier on the show, this whole endeavor by Apple with Research Kit and Care Kit um, isn't really selling phones. Right. It's It really is a... You know, and as much as we can bitch about Apple um, jealously guarding its margins by still selling 16 gigabyte devices instead of starting everything at 32, um, here's an area. These areas, like the environment and health kit, and uh, well, maybe not health kit, but but research kit and care kit for sure, aren't really about selling. You know devices i really do think it's it is an institutional this is the right thing to do we're in a position to do this and we should do it we're making the world a better place right i think i think it's almost like it's incumbent on us because we've got a popular platform i don't know if google has similar initiatives i kind of hope they do because it's as a platform owner you kind of need to be the one to say yeah we're going to make this easier for these industries to work on our platform i think and i think that it's the exact sort of thing that google would do too yeah it, it does seem like the sort of you know the that without any sort of cynicism at all, that it's you know, it is the sort of thing that Google would want to do. I mean, you you're responsible for this uh, these devices that are on everybody's bodies. Uh, they they can make a huge impact, but they probably need a push because the industry is not monolithic enough, probably, to create an initiative to do it. But you're the platform owner; you could do it, and then yeah. you you could help them. And there there are eventual benefits, I think, from in terms of sales. Like if you've got uh, healthcare professionals in the healthcare industry really happy about how I, Apple listens to them and does all of this, maybe in the end they are more inclined to buy iPads or whatever. But it's super interesting. It's not like Research Kit is going to, you know, sell thousands of iPhones. I think you're right about that. Yeah. Um, so then Tim Cook came back on stage uh, and talked about Apple Watch, and and this is a perfect example of the sort of thing that years ago I would not have expected Tim Cook to handle. Was that it was Tim Cook who introduced the new, and again, it's not blockbuster news, but new new watch straps across the line. Um, our our uh, what did he say? Our spring colors. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think you know, I, it, it's it's not just gently tweaked. I definitely see this as some kind of strategic move on Apple's part that they really are like every six months going to you know 
I, I fully expect in September to, you know, probably new watch hardware in September. We can talk about that in a moment too, but you know, new bands too. Right. Um, a couple of things. One thing is that they reduced the price. The starting price for the the sport models dropped fifty bucks. Um, so now it's a two ninety nine starting price for the thirty eight millimeter sport. I didn't check even. Did did the did the bigger sport model also drop fifty bucks? Oh, I didn't check either. I think so. I think the sport sport dropped fifty. Yeah, I think that was the story. Is sport dropped fifty. The, the, the others, I saw somebody on Twitter said, "Why didn't they drop the edition fifty <laughs> So I think they were joking. I was like, "Oh, that's good." Yeah, um, but you know, you want a lower entry cost. Uh, and you know, I got into it on a post, a brief post on Daring Fireball the other day, where somebody in a, otherwise an article about something else just offhandedly mentioned that it's it seems like it's a sign that the watch is selling lower than expected because they dropped the price. And I don't think that that's necessarily true at all. I think that the watch is – it could be, but I don't think you should draw that conclusion. I think because it was announced it, – it's been out for a year, but it was announced 18 months ago. Um, yeah. That in 18 months, the idea that they could manuf- you know, cut the price by 50 bucks and keep the margin around the same is a very Apple-like thing to do. And then on Twitter, some people called me out and said, well, when Apple never drops the price of anything. Look, MacBooks are all you know still 899 and 999 um, And it's true for certain products. They, they kind of try to keep a price and keep it there. But on others, like, and I would compare, the, especially the sport watch, I would compare to the iPod in terms of what kind of product it mean it is to Apple. And, you know, the price points are similar. And the iPods regularly dropped in price, or at least the starting price of an iPod dropped by like 50 bucks or so pretty steadily year after year after year until they got it down to, you know, uh, you know $50 uh, ones that you attach to your jacket. Right. So I see that as something that I I think, you know, that we'll see, you know, eventually, you know, maybe a year or two from now that the starting price will go to 199. And yeah, I don't I, know I don't know what the bottom is, but it's probably like 149 or something like that. I think you're right. I think if you look at the price, would you if you look at the price when it came out, you would have to say is it Apple's intent that the Apple Watch to get into an Apple Watch will always be 349 or, or 400 bucks or something like that. Is that is it really their long-term plan that this will always be a $400 product? No. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. That's too expensive. It is it's a first generation product. That's what they have to sell it at, but in the long run it's got to be cheaper than that, right? There's, to start at least. It, it has to be. So, I think that's part of it. I think yeah, there it's a it's a product that's been out there a long time. They want to they want more people in the Apple Watch world right so you lower the price a little bit you've got margin to give now i think it i think it's fine i i do think that if they were selling every single one that they could make and then were supply constrained they wouldn't lower the price right but um you're obviously not at that part of the cycle right but i think you're right if if apple could make an apple watch ultimately make an apple watch with good margins for 150 bucks they would they would prefer to do that because this is an iphone accessory i think they would rather have the volume go up and then again keeping in mind even if you sold it at 150 bucks, you got watch bands, and then you've got your fancier models that are always going to be there and always going to be enticing people on the uh, to spend more money. I was talking to um, Mike Hurley on our uh, our podcast, and he he listed off all the um, watch bands that he's bought, and it's like he has spent <laughs> as much on watch bands for the Apple Watch as he spent on the Apple Watch, right? I mean, so that it's was not an, just the that was price an interesting number from Tim on stage. It was something that they, to my knowledge, had never revealed before. He said one third of their Apple Watch customers regularly change bands 
Yeah. And I'm in there. I've got like I've got like three and I definitely cycle between them. And it's kind of fun to yeah. not it makes it a little bit different uh for a few weeks on, I, and then I switch back. Yeah. I got uh Apple gave me a uh uh the the new space black one with Milanese as oh, a yeah. re- to review. Um uh which is nice. I uh I like it more than I I I've worn it a couple days this week. Um I kind of don't like it though for exactly the reason that I thought which is that I I kind of wear my watch out at the hinge of my wrist and so it's sort of like when I flex my wrist it it puts a little stress on the band and the Milanese slips a little right. tiny bit as the way I wear it I feel like like I I would need to wear it a little bit higher on my wrist to keep it snug. Um but I also got the nylon band and I like that a lot the nylon the new nylon strap yeah, they they um there was that rumor that they were going to do like full on like NATO straps and it's it's very um I was struck by something that Marco Arment said on on ATP the other week which is and he's he's kind of like abandoned the Apple Watch and has right. gone to mechanical watches and all that. Oh, he's but off he, the deep end. He's he's Yeah, he, oh, he it's Marco. He doesn't any, do anything halfway, no. right? No. Um but but what struck me about about somebody who's not into the Apple Watch anymore has moved on said and has done like real watches said said apple's bands are like second to none apple really really owns the 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 watch band game and i agree with that i think their bands are really great i bought this kickstarter thing that get lets you use any watch band with Mm -hmm. uh it's got just a couple of lugs for the apple watch and i put this black leather band that i had on them and it's terrible like in in context compared to the apple leather band it's just not even close and so that that nato strap rumor was interesting and it is is it surprising at all that in in the end what apple did is say we've got something that's kind of like that but it's way better and yeah and then that's what the this woven uh stuff is it's like apple's take on the genre of nato strap but not uh, not the same yeah and it's funny too because the one thing with the nato strap is um uh, the real NATO straps go underneath the watch it's like one continuous piece yeah. of nylon that goes through the lug under the back so that the actual back of the watch doesn't touch your wrist. It's, it sits on top of the strap. Um, and I remember I listened to the ATPX episode and Syracuse was confused as to why that is. There actually is like a tactical reason for the design of the strap. The idea is that if one of the bars of your watch that holds a strap, if one of them breaks while you're like in combat, because it's just one strap that goes through. If one of the bars breaks, the watch won't come off your wrist. It'll hmm. it'll be flopping around because there's one bar broken, but the the you know the rest of the strap will be going through the other bar. Right, because you've essentially tie, tied a strap to your wrist. Right. Um, there's super. There's super super valuable. Um, I mean, I think that they regularly sell for like fifty thousand dollars or more. But there's um, some vintage Rolexes that they made for the British military in the late sixties and early seventies. Um, and that they only could use a NATO strap because the, by the specs of the British military, the, the crossbars in the watch, the thing that you need, like, you know, in in a normal watch, you need like a special tool to like, you know, it's called a spring bar. So you'd compress it a little bit. So it pops out so you can change the strap. Mm -hmm. Those bars were, um, like, welded or whatever you would call it you know they 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 weren't springy they they were like part of the actual watch huh. so that they would be even less likely to break so there is a tactical reason for that but that design wouldn't work at all with the apple watch because the strap would actually cover the sensors exactly so they had to uh do their own thing their little apple spin on it right 
I find it to be a very comfortable material, though. I have a strap like that on an old uh, uh, regular watch that I have. A similar, it's not really a NATO style. I actually because I don't like the I don't like the way that it sits on your wrist when it goes through like that. But it's NATO style and has it just attaches to spring bars like a regular watch. But I find that nylon is actually a super comfortable material, uh, especially like in hot weather. Yeah, and they look better. I've heard some people say that they thought they looked kind of ugly on the uh, on the Apple website. They look be- way better in person. Yeah, they're actually very hard to photograph. Yeah. I think that. Yeah, well, it's Apple's... almost like you get a little moray pattern on them because yeah. they are they are these super patterned woven, uh, you know, multiple color uh, woven fabric. So that they're hard yeah. to they're hard to picture. Yeah, like I'm looking at it right now on Apple's website, and by putting them at any kind of angle, it, even on a retina, my retina display here, it's it. It's it's not a good pattern on it. Yeah, on it, it looks weird. Looks weird. But in person, they look nice. Um, but no major earth-shaking news on Apple Watch, which was exactly what we expected. Right. So, do you think? Well, we talked about this in person after the event. Do you think that they have to do? I kind of think they do have to do Apple Watch 2.0 in September. I think I think they need to do a refresh. September will be two years since it was announced, uh, if not shipped. Right. Um, and so it's hard to say that the hardware is two years old because the hardware didn't exist when it was announced, right? <laughs> it was right. they were still working on it, and then they got it out six months later. But I feel like they they do need to do a refresh. At the same time, I, I wonder what does an Apple Watch refresh look like, and is it? You know, they've got so much work I think to do on the software side still too. That is it is it like I would like to see it be subtle. I'd like it to see it be like, yes, there's a new model, but it looks like the old model, more or less. All the bands yeah. work with it. It behaves more or less the same. Maybe it's more energy efficient. It lasts longer. It's 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 more, it's faster, whatever, but it's sort of like still Apple Watch. Almost, not like a stealth replacement. Apple Watch 2 is completely new, but more like, now, you know, here's the new model of Apple Watch. It's it's a little bit better, Um and and like leave it at that because I I I feel like what they really don't want to do is give the Im, the the impression that every two years there's going to be a completely different Apple Watch and all of your old stuff is going to be gone. Um, I I think they all want, almost want to make it feel timeless. Like this is our design. It's going to look like this for a while. You you know you can get used to it. Feel feel good about buying one. Um, but we'll we'll see. I I that's my hope is that it's. It's not like a like a major phone announcement, but it's more like yeah, the Apple Watch is a little bit better now, but it's still the Apple Watch, yeah. and in the, especially on the hardware side because you know I think the hardware is is it can always be improved, but it's not the problem with the Apple Watch. If I've got problems with the Apple Watch, and we talked about this too when we were in Cupertino, you know I think it's more on the software. Like after two years um, of use, or in a year and a half where the public is 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 using it, they they should have some better ideas about like assumptions they made two years ago that maybe aren't right that they yeah. need to fix in software. I I think the hardware needs improvement too. I think that the the thing is just too damn slow. I yeah. Well, that it's hard. I really, to, it's hard to tell, right? Because is that the software, or the hardware? It's got to be the hardware. That's just right. the, the fact that it takes forever for apps to launch, and sometimes they right. don't. Well, and just for example, like I just went through it again because they they let me have a review unit of the <laughs> the Milanese thing. So I paired it with the it, it and it's the whole hassle. It's such a it, it's the worst thing in the world to complain about because we what a great job. I have. This is great. I mean, I so I don't want to complain. And then I, you know, Apple gives me these things to review, and I get to play with this all this stuff without having to buy it. It's it's great fun, but it you know, but 
it's a pain in the ass. Like with the way that Apple Watch is paired to a phone, it's a pain in the ass to test a new phone because then you can't really fully test it unless you're also pairing it, you know, with your yep. watch. If that's how you normally, if you actually wear an Apple Watch, um, and you, you know, it's such a pain in the ass to pair and unpair a watch. But just pairing the new watch that they they gave me to review, I paired it with the iPhone SE. So I'm I'm leaving my watch, my the one I actually bought and own, paired with the iPhone 6s that I bought and own, and I'm using their review unit watch with the review unit phone. Um, what a pain in the ass it is to set up a new Apple Watch. It is. It takes forever. Yeah, it's um, and that's not just a reviewer's problem. Um, my wife had her um. She had her iPhone screen break and got a replacement, and the replacement digitizer was bad. So she right. took it back, and they and they replaced the whole unit. And you know what that means? She had to then re- repair her <laughs> Apple Watch and restore it from the backup, and it took forever. And then it wasn't working right, and and they said, um, wipe wipe it, and don't restore your backup, and see if it's something weird involving your backup. So we wiped it. And then we had to repair the Apple Watch again, and it's another like hour to set that up. It, so there are real world scenarios where it's like anytime you change anything about your phone, you have to go through that Apple Watch process again. Right, and I don't, and t- I think in the long run, they, they have to be aware of this because inside Apple, they have to be, you know, they they probably pair and unpair Apple Watches more than anybody, you know, yeah. while they're testing yeah, betas so. and testing, you know, prototype new devices and stuff like that. So they have to be aware of that, but it, it's. When you've gone through it and it's no longer novel, like when you when it first came out, and sure it took a long time, but you could like, you know, I was you know just studying what it does and watching the little spinner go around, and it's yeah. like, oh, that's a clever thing. But now it's like, oh my god, this is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it, I mean, it really can it, take like an hour. It's got you, you. So yeah, I mean, the hardware. I, I would imagine that uh, um, a new Apple Watch would not look that different. There's a rumor about putting a camera on it. I don't even know about that because it's just going to take pictures up your nose. But, it seems um, ridiculous. But, but making the processor faster and m- more energy efficient uh, so that the battery lasts longer. These are things that um, I could see, right? Th- th- that's, to me, it feels like that's what the, the new Apple Watch should be is like the old Apple Watch except uh, faster and lasts longer. I can. The only thing I could think of using the camera for would not be FaceTime because, again, the angle would be terrible and the the your arm would get tired within like fifteen seconds. Yeah. Um, I I could see it though if they can do it. It would almost be, to me the only time I would imagine using it. And I've I've been in the situation like when I'm out jogging and and don't want to take my phone out of the pocket I have it in or whatever. If the, it's already on my, if I see something interesting, it would be interesting to just point my wrist at it and take a picture, but there'd be no, there's problems with that too, right? You, Cause you don't, you wouldn't be able to look at the screen to, yeah. to do it. If you're pointing, just pointing your watch at something, if you can launch a co- camera app and it turns the, uh, like the bottom button into a shutter for a picture, you could get a picture, but you, you know, you're almost like shooting it blind. Yeah, I, I took some pictures at the Apple event without looking through the viewfinder of like low low angles of uh, Apple products in the hands-on area afterward, and they were all terrible because I couldn't frame them <laughs> right. right. It, that's not going to be. Yeah, I I get the appeal of the Dick Tracy video watch kind of thing, but boy, that would right. not be where I would put my. That's not the thing that's crying out on the Apple exactly, watch, right? right. <laughs> it's boy, if only it had a camera in there, man, then we would really have something. That right. is not what I I think is going on with the Apple Watch. Exactly. Um, 
So yeah, I do think though that the the big news for the watch and hardware and software will all be in September. I think it'll be a huge part of the September event. Yeah, I'd love to see if there was a if they talk about Watch OS three a lot at WWDC if if hmm. we get if we get maybe get a sense of that there right I I'm and I'm hoping I'm really hoping that they rethink the whole thing because yeah. it, it it feels like and developers feel this way too I think which is you know the app model doesn't really work right and it's com- confusing and people aren't using apps uh, in large part on the on the watch when I talk to developers who have watch apps their apps don't get used very much and that would be a good time for them to communicate with developers is like all right we're going to make some changes to the watch os we're going to make it simpler you know this is how you're going to your software is going to interact with it it's going to be a little bit different i would love to hear that at, at wwdc um, we'll see if, if they cuz i feel like after 2 years they got to look at it and go oh yeah we we probably this whole complications and glances and apps from the app launcher screen and what we use the buttons for. It's like, we, we kind of got it wrong. Let's, let's clean this up and, and, and do a take two on it. Um, and I hope they do. I hope they don't, I hope they, uh, I I think it would be hard for them not to notice that. And I hope they're like pride doesn't get in the way of like, no, 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 no. no. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. Uh, because I think this product could be way better, even if all they did was change some of the things about the software. Yeah, I very much agree with that. I we ever t- my bottom line is that I think they made a big mistake by offering apps in the first place. That maybe eventually they should have done it, but I think they should have bit the bullet and done what they did with the iPhone and wait at least a year before they open it up to apps. Um just because the app experience is so poor. Yeah. It's it, it really would have been better to ship without it, even though it would have inevitably led to people screaming that they want apps only in theory but I still think it just the actual experience of it and the way it's played out, I think bears that out. Like you said, like developers even say, you know, we made the app and nobody uses it. Yeah. And, and um, having, you know, your apps on your phone is phone accessory. Having your apps on your phone do things on the watch that are interesting. I like that idea. I think the complications thing is actually way more interesting. I think glances are actually a little bit more interesting. I'd yep. almost rather glances be more powerful and yeah. not have apps. Yeah, I I never want to go. I can't remember the last time that I wanted to and needed to go to the app screen. So the pressing one of the primary buttons on the thing, one press on the crown, takes me to a place where I never want to go. <laughs> yep. Uh, so anyway, I'm with you. I new hardware, and I I hope like a an interesting conceptual rethink of the software. It would. I, I didn't really think about the fact that they might do that. It's at WWDC. I kind of bet that they don't because I think that if they're going to do that. I, I, now that you mention it, I kind of think it could be a big tell as to whether they're going to rethink it or not. And I feel like if they talk about it at WWDC, it probably won't involve a major conceptual rethink of how the watch OS works. And if they are going to do it, I think they're going to save it for September so that they can add to the surprise of the event. Or it'll be one of those half measures things where, you know, here are some new things you can do with watch apps. And leaving aside that, oh, well, we're actually going to change how you get to them and how right. it works. But, you know, only tell the developers what they need to know to, to to get their apps. I don't know. I feel like they need to evangelize with developers about watch apps because I feel like there that was not only did the customers sort of get um, let down by the apps, but the developers got let down by the apps. It was uh, right. their, their 
they had to change, you know, midstream. The, the watchOS 2 apps were different rules than the original watch apps. And, and so I feel like, uh, yeah, if they want, if they want active app, uh, developers on the watch, they're going to have to tell them a story of some kind at WWDC. Yeah. Uh, and I think that, you know, the truth is that they burned a little bit of trust, right? Yeah. Was, oh yeah. You know, the message from Apple, both publicly and privately, like we're talking to like developer relations people was seriously, you, you know, you should do this. You should, you know, you should, you need a story to get on the watch, you know, get on the watch. And a lot of, you know, a lot of people listened to it and a lot of people did it. And I think a lot of people see it as effectively wasted effort or at least effort that might've been better allocated to something else. Not that it was completely wasted, but that maybe the time would have been better spent, you know, making your iPad version of your app better right. as opposed and, to. And, and not just because of like how many people, it's not how many people have Apple watches. That's not the issue. The issue is people who have the Apple watches aren't using their watch apps because the app experience on the watch is bad. Right. Right. Um, that brings us to, uh, the iPhone SE and, uh, Jaws did it on stage. I, I guess we can just mix talking about the actual device with, with, with the event. Um, I thought he did a good job. I thought, you know, we haven't seen Jaws on stage in a while and I, yeah, I think he's really, he's a great presenter. I think so too. I ran into him before the event. Uh, um, and I walked over from, um, from building one where we all came in over to building, for with him and we were chatting because he he saw the town hall story that we did and and thought that was thought that was great and it turns out they had a slide about it at the end of the presentation mm. so we we people were like oh see it's not just us um which was cool and i i've known that guy for a long time because he used to be like the powerbook product manager i mean he goes back yeah. a long way at apple and uh, he, he he is very good on stage, and one of those town hall events that we found, um, he like was the person who introed the event. He like got up on stage and said, "Good morning, everybody. Welcome to this Apple event." I'm like, "Wow!" I yeah, totally forget- I, I remember that one. I think it was like the iOS two or iOS three. Yeah, and, I- and it was like a March event where they were like uh, announcing. I think maybe like iOS three, and I think, I think- it was the, the iPhone software three I think is what they called it. Right, and uh, it was at a time one of the times when Steve Jobs was on a medical leave. Right, and it was and so, a year after they had they had launched the App Store. Um, right, yeah, yeah. So he's good, and it was great to see him on stage because I I I, I like him. I think he's a I think he's a, a good guy, and uh, and I think he does a good job on stage. He's he's always been sort of you know he works for for Phil Schiller, so. Yeah. Um, he doesn't get necessarily as many opportunities to shine because Phil could have done that demo, right? right? But but instead, Jaws did it, and I thought uh, I thought he did a good job. Yeah, uh, and it's a tough it's a tough pitch. Like I said at the beginning of the show, it's you know here's a phone that everything about it is familiar in yeah. some way. It's just a new combination, and you know I thought he did a good job. And as somebody who's been looking forward to the idea of a four inch phone that please 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 still has top of the line specs, uh, I was really happy with the announcement. Tons yeah. of speculation before the event that that it was going to have like a uh, underclocked A9, if it does have an A9, that the camera would be some sort of lesser uh, image quality compared to the success. Uh, and both of those things turned out not to be true. Yeah, it's um, it's funny. The the it makes sense to me, right? The rumors that like, oh, it's going to be a redesigned thing, and and you know, it's it's a uh, and, and and well, I mean, what you said about the the idea of it being uh, underclocked, underclocked, I was pondering that because on one level, that doesn't that make sense? It's like, well, it's going to be the cheapest phone, 
it should be kind of lesser, right? And then as I was listening, I thought, okay, I see what they're doing here. They're doing a lot of what they did when they did the iPad Air 2, which yeah. is let's max it out now. And then we're going to just leave it there for a while. Because are they really going to do a new iPhone SE every year? No, they're not. So pack it with the the 6S stuff for the most part right now. Pack that in. And I, I would call that this year's technology, but it's not this year's technology, right? It's it's last year's technology. Right. It's in the current, current models, but there will be new models in a few months. Um, so pack it with last year's technology, but, uh, that will give you a couple, you know, two, three years where you don't have to update it. And then in two or three years, you turn it around again, maybe, and have it look perhaps even exactly the same as it does now again. But you, you, you know, at that point you'll put in the specs from the iPhone seven S or whatever. Yeah, that's the, the, <laughs> it's like, I've been hoping for an iPhone four with, with these specs for so long. And now that I've got it, I'm instantly worried about the future future <laughs> sure right because you may not be able to whatever amazing thing they announce this fall or even next fall you know may may not come to that phone for two years or three years <laughs> that's very true now so my thinking strategically is that they're definitely not going to do a four inch phone in september another one no de- certainly not right certainly not. i don't even think it'll be once a year I don't think so either. Like, and I know, and that's a couple of people I've spoken to privately have been like, who who are four inch fans, uh, were you know like I think it's too much to ask that they are going to do an iPhone seven that comes in three sizes, uh, four four point seven and five point five, because this it's only six months after this event, right? Like they'll so they'll go off cycle with events, but they almost never. The only one I can the only example I can think of is when they 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 replaced the iPad three six months after it came out. Right, yeah. That was like the first Retina iPad, and it <laughs> yeah, was like, so underpowered for that. Under, that they're like, uh, nope, forget it. <laughs> it was. It was like the. It's like the one iOS clunker device that they've mm-hmm. shipped, and it was nice in some ways because it was Retina, and Retina in and of itself is. I, I think that's why they did it. Is that yeah. Retina in and of itself is so compelling. Um, and we because bought one. F- My wife used that for uh, several years. Yeah. Yeah, but it you know was replaced just six months after it mm-hmm. came out, which is unusual. But that was because it was you know there were problems with the with the iPad three. It was too heavy. It was underpowered, and yeah. there's no problems with the iPhone SE like that. No, and and. You know, Apple has shown in the last few years that they're willing to take these products and put them on other something other than a one-year cycle. It's like, how do we do more products? One way we do more products as Apple is not not update all our products every year, right? Yeah. So, so they the iPad Air is a great example. iPad Air two, the iPad Mini uh, had a had a, a year where they didn't do a new version of it, right? And then you come out with one, and it's top of the line. Like the iPad Air two blew us away with how much stuff was in it. And that's good because it was so far ahead that it had a lot of like room to fall, a lot of time where it could kind of decay as other products advanced and it would still be pretty good. And yeah. and that's still I mean, cutting the price on it, that's still a pretty great product with a a pretty great price even now. But that's that I feel is what the SE story is. It's the same thing. It's like let's max yeah. it out now because then it's just gonna sit there for a couple of years. Yeah, I kind of feel like it's it's the iPhone five C done right. It's... Yeah, yeah. I mean, the five C, like it was literally the old phone, and uh, with color in it. Right. And I think people felt like they were getting. I think one of the reasons it didn't sell so well is that they felt like they were getting kind of last year's tech. 
Yeah. And and it was not really a new phone. It was just a new wrapper. And the, the iPhone SE is a new phone in yeah. an old wrapper. Well, and I know that there are definitely, you know, and it, we say no, you know, we always speak in, I always speak in extremes because it's easier. You say nobody wanted to buy last year's phone or nobody wanted to buy a phone that didn't look like a premium iPhone. And of course that's not true. Plenty of people bought the iPhone 5C. I'm sure there's lots of yeah. people who are still using it. I even I've been on Apple's campus and not recently, but uh, you know when it was fresher, I saw people, you know, Apple employees who obviously are well informed about the specs uh, and could have any phone iPhone that they want. Who chose the 5C because they wanted the color? You know, yeah. it definitely appealed to some people. Totally. Um, but San Bernardino as- County loved it too. I think, as as friend of the show Ben Thompson though has has pointed out, I think in the aggregate though, it, pro- it proved to be a mistake to make a phone that didn't look like a premium iPhone. That yeah. the iPhone brand is too it's it hinges upon looking like a premium device, and therefore it needs to be made out of Apple's premium materials, which at the moment are you know anodized aluminum. Yeah, it's almost like uh, it's, it's psychology that. It can be cheaper. That's fine, but it still needs to look like it's premium, like it's expensive. Yeah. Um, that's that's a, an important part of the brand identity, I guess. Yeah. So I my guess is strategically they are not going to do a new one next year. Uh, maybe I I wouldn't be surprised if they never make a four inch iPhone again. And I know that that kind of is a little contrary to Jaws's pitch on stage, which was that we've you know realized that some people prefer a four inch phone. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they never do again, but it might be completely based on how well the iPhone SE sells. If it does sell well enough that they're like, yeah, we should, you know, we should definitely keep this in the line, you know, something at this size in the lineup. I wouldn't be surprised if we don't hear uh, get another one for two years. Yeah, I I would be shocked if it wasn't on a two or three year cycle, and that's that's okay. Not every Apple product needs to get updated every year, right? Because we just got we got trained that there would always be a new one, right. and and their bandwidth. I mean, like I said, the idea that you've got now three different current iPhone models plus two of last year's that are still being made and sold. So there's five new iPhones, right? You can't and, and three current models. You can't turn them all over every year. They 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 just they can't. They right. they Apple, I don't think, between its designers and engineers and all that, even Apple doesn't have the bandwidth to do that, and all the iPads that they've got now, right. and all the Macs they've got now. So you pull some things that are less uh, vital, and you and you put them on a two-year cycle. There's nothing wrong with that. And until Monday, the I, you know, the four-inch iPhone that they were selling was from 2013. It was two and yep. a half years old. So yep. I wouldn't be surprised at all and in fact if you follow the apple as a company of patterns i think i wouldn't be surprised if maybe we get another one two and a half years from now maybe they'll do a a four inch phone that premieres at the september event yeah could be could be or or it'll be another thing like this where in two years there'll be a there'll be a spring event and it'll be the the best tech from the iphone 7s inside the new iphone se right um one thing they mentioned multiple times jaws mentioned at least at least twice was that the chamfered edge is now matte instead of polished, which is true. <laughs> it is you can if you look at it side by side with an iPhone five or five five or five S, you will see the difference. I thought it was a curious thing that they mentioned multiple times, though. Well, I mean, it's like literally the only thing that's different about the phone. <laughs> I, right. I wonder. I wonder. Um, whether that is a decision, I would love to know if that is a decision made for aesthetic reasons or financial reasons. Because yeah. is, is it is it that Johnny Ive said, "Oh, you know, 
if I ever get a chance, I'm not going to do a Johnny Ive voice. If I ever get a okay. chance to revisit the 5S, the thing the thing that bothers me about it is I really regret the shiny chamfered edge, given that the that the the rest of the edges are all matte. It, it was a mistake. Um, or whether it's more like, hey, Johnny, it's going to save us like $2 a phone not to have the chamfered edge be shiny. Do you care? And have him say, nah, it's fine. And he cared, he cared when the phone was new. And he was like, "No, right. goddamn it, we're gonna, you know, we're paying the fifty cents to do it." And now he does. It's like sort of like he doesn't doesn't really care about the yeah. SE so enough. I'd love to know whether whether it was that. Like, right. is it a financial decision, or or is it like a revisitation of, you know, oh, I've changed my mind about the chamfered edges now. I could I, see it either way. I could see it that maybe it was actually difficult to do the matte finish, and they couldn't do it before, and now they they figured out a way to do it, and now they're that's why they mentioned it twice because it's right. a hard thing to do. They're I don't proud. They're proud of it. I I don't know either. It, it certainly. Um, I think it certainly makes the design of the phone more consistent to have it be not shiny on the on the chamfers because um, nothing else is shiny. <laughs> uh, but I, I don't know from a from a aesthetic uh, like a as a hardware designer what what somebody like Johnny Ive would say about it. I, I I'm a little baffled, but like literally that's it for the 5s because the 5s has the has the the double flash on the back, so the the camera the flash. Everything other than the Apple itself and the and the the printing on the back, the only other physical characteristic that is different is that chamfer. <laughs> so I guess if we talk about it, because what else are we going to say? All right, I guess. Um, uh, what do you what do you what are your thoughts on four inch phones? Are you a four inch? Are you tempted? I'm a, I'm a little bit tempted. Um, it, it's. I go back and forth on it. I mean, the big big screens are nice. The thing I love about the about the um, four inch size and the the iPhone five design is it's um, it feels great in the hand. It's easier to hold. the The sixes do feel slippery and like a, like they're like a polished rock. Um, I've never felt comfortable. It's the first I always wore my uh, wore my iPhone naked, um, and I put a case on the on the six, and I moved that case to the six S, the Apple leather case, right. because I just I needed it to be grippier. I felt like it was going to slip out of my hands. I never feel that way with the with the fives. I've always I've always uh, felt that they were they were super solid. Um, but you know the trade off there is that the yeah the screen's a lot smaller, and as somebody who is not a commuter anymore, um, I. You know, I don't rely on my iPhone as much as I used to. I use it when I'm out and I use it like if I'm walking the dog or taking a run or something like that, I'm listening to podcasts on it or something like that. But I, I used to use it all the time when I was riding the bus and things like that. And I don't, I don't do that anymore. So, um, so for me, it's less of a productivity device than it used to be. And so the smaller screen probably wouldn't make much of a difference to me, um, and it's and it's easier to hold. So I'm, I'm kind of on the fence about it. I, I, I'm tempted. I, I totally am tempted. Um, I'm also a little reluctant to embrace it because of what we said before, which is right. it's it's state of the art for six months, and then right. it probably will be not state of the art for the next eighteen. Exactly, and then I'm and I'm. It, it's like however much I prefer the size, and I definitely prefer the size. I'm not going to not have the top of the line phone. So come yeah. September when the iPhone Seven comes out, I'm going to switch to that anyway. So Which is why this is a phone for people who um, aren't uh, desperate to always be on the cutting edge, like some of us, right. and, or for somebody for whom the the larger size is just a deal breaker. And I've heard from, I know a bunch of people who have held on to those 5Ss because they're like, I don't want a bigger phone. It's too big right. for me. 
and and some of them i mean there was a conversation on twitter that i thought was pretty good about like you can you, you can overstate saying well women have with small hands uh prefer a small phone because i know a lot of women who love huge phones because they just put yep. their phone in their purse and it doesn't it doesn't matter but I, yep. I i do know people men and women who find holding that big phone uncomfortable and the little phone a lot more comfortable and so for those people uh, you know i think or, or uncomfortable in their pocket or they have small pockets and they can't fit a phone in their pocket those are the people who are gonna who are gonna love it as well as all the people who want the to buy an iphone and this is going to be by far the cheapest iphone they can buy yeah i do miss I, there's so much of this design that i miss i, yeah. I love that it stands up on any side you can put it sideways to watch video you can stand it up to take pictures uh there's no camera bump no camera bump oh <laughs> And I'll say this too, it's got a headphone jack on it. So if the future of the iPhone and, all, and being on the cutting edge is losing the headphone jack, maybe I'm okay with having the uh, the retro phone that's uh, that's not on the cutting edge. I don't know. It does feel a little retro. It does. It's it funny does. to talk about something that, what, the design premiered in 2012 to yeah. talk about it being retro, but it's it does. It's from, it's from earlier in the decade. Right. Well, anyway, I like it and... Uh, yeah, my good. only the only reason I wouldn't switch from my 4s or not 4s Jesus <laughs> uh, the 6s back and and switch to this size is only because I I think it's a you know a six why get used to it for six months and only to go back in yeah. September because you're gonna want that iPhone seven whatever it is right you're gonna want it yeah well I, I honestly it's the camera quality and I say that knowing that I could uh, get slightly better optical you know I get the optical image. Uh, stabilization in the six in the plus but I'm, I'm not switching to a plus size phone but okay so what happens if there's that rumor that there's going to be a super fancy camera that's only going to be on a plus model would that be enough like a really good um maybe almost like slr quality camera on an iphone but it, you had to get the big iphone would you get the big iphone for that's the a, camera that is um, i've been thinking about that ever since the rumor i'm and i i don't know what i'd do i i, I don't know <laughs> It would be that would be a very hard question because the camera is seriously so important to me. I mean, I know I've said this before, but I know it's called the iPhone. But if I had to pick one component to break, and it, the option was you can have you know for the rest of the week, you can either use this phone that doesn't make phone calls, or you can use this one that doesn't take pictures. Almost all the time, I'd want the one that that has the broken phone but takes pictures. Mm. It's it's more of an eye camera to me than an iPhone. Just yeah, literally. I, I'd agree. I mean, for me, if if it if it all it did was take pictures and play podcasts, I'd probably be okay with not having it make phone calls. Right. So I, I don't know if the, I, I really hope that the the idea that the dual camera is only in a plus. I hope that's not true. Yeah, me too. But I, I could see I could see them doing that, right? I mean, and I I do think that cameras is one of these like we've come so far with the smartphones, like we were talking about earlier. But camera technology is like. That's one of the frontiers of smartphones. Cameras and then imperviousness to dam damage seem yeah. to me like the big areas here. Yeah. And I could maybe yeah. throw in glare. Like, I'm glad that they talked about glare in the new iPad, yeah. which we'll get to, because that's that's also an issue. But it's not like it's got to be faster. All, all that is sure. Yeah, it's got to have more battery life. But great cameras in a, in a, in a smartphone is a, you know, that's a huge area of interest for anybody who's got it. Because those are our cameras now. So I've the, all, I've, keep I've making them better. It, I, you, you talked about your love of the original iPhone feel, and I feel the same way about it. I love the outside design, but it's, 
it, it's always mind blowing to me. I mean, we're nine years into it, but I still feel like it's the new thing, the iPhone. But the original iPhone camera was a total piece of crap. It's terrible. It was, it was just like a stock. <laughs> like phone camera part from Japan that yeah. they, I mean, I'm glad they put it in, but it, it was, you know, almost useless for, it was, it was no better than the type of pictures you took with your dumb phone. Really. It didn't even, and it didn't even take video. You couldn't even shoot bad video. It just yeah, it didn't, re- didn't do video. It reminded me of like the bad camcorder, or, or really, I was gonna say the bad camcorders in the early days of VHS, but no, it reminded me of like the really bad early digital cameras where it's just, you know, it's streaky, it can't do low light at all. It's a miracle that it's there at all, but it's really like, why not put, sure, we should put a camera on it. It's not any good and you would never want to use it unless you were desperate, right. but at least we have it and it's come and now, a long way. And now we've got people, you know, we've got kids, you know, in, in the intervening nine years, we've got kids who their entire uh all of the video that's been taken of them as little babies and growing up has all been shot on iphones and it's great quality yeah i mean 4k 4k video it's just just like mind-blowing it's on my tv my tv i actually do have a 4k tv i could figure out a way to put it on there i could i could watch that 4k video on there but it's just yeah it's come a long way and yet i take pictures with my slr my five-year-old slr and um, oh, they're they're way better. Yeah, right. So there's there's plenty more work to be done. Oh, tons of room, especially in in uh, in lower light. Yeah, and and in in the beauty of having these um, the the smartphones having the processors they do right is that the image processing is part of the equation too. So software yeah. and and uh, and chip design can help too. So I, I mean, I don't know. Did you see that? There's like a, a thing that looks like a smartphone, but it's not a smartphone. It's a camera and it's got like nine lenses. Yes. On it. I know exactly what you're talking about. I and, forget the and name. It, and I know it's really weird, but you, you do, I think we're entering that era now where people are rethinking how you do photography in a, uh, given that you have to have a flat device. And the answer is, well, I can't have a long lens, but I can have a lot of lenses <laughs> and use software because I've got this yeah. super powerful processor here. And so I think things are going to get really interesting for phone photography in the next few years. Yeah, totally. I don't think we're anywhere close to it. And I think that the fact that the ad campaign that they've really, really been pounding for close to two years, I think now, is shot with iPhone 6. Yeah. You know, you know I just realized... If it if the ad campaign is shot shot with iPhone success or whatever that I think that's what it is now shot with iPhone success, will will they will they allow pictures shot with the iPhone SE? <laughs> like, is that like a is there like a certain truth in advertising that a phone you know you can't use a, a picture shot with iPhone SE if the campaign is shot with iPhone success? Maybe it'll just be shot with iPhone. Yeah, that's what I think the campaign should be shot with iPhone. I don't think they should. I don't think they should say success. Although maybe there's you know some sort of trying to tempt people to upgrade aspect to it. Um, I guess the last thing, and here's another thing that I did not write about on Monday, and I think I should have. And I feel like in, in reading other people's coverage, so many excellent pieces that were written. You had a good pit. You you had a good take. Uh, ben Thompson had a great take. Um, uh, but the one thing I missed was the price. I and I feel like, oh, in, in large part, in recent years, I've really gotten away from talking about prices. I just accept them for what they are, and and I think that it's I'm I'm doing a disservice to my analysis by not taking it into e- an equation. I think somebody called it out, like in one of my reviews, recent big reviews, like maybe for the iPhone success. I didn't even talk about like what the prices were or whether people should buy it or not. I just talk about what it does. 
Um, a three ninety nine starting point for a top of the line iPhone is a huge difference. I think that the starting price for an iPhone six S or our new, I think it was like six six forty nine to buy one without you know a contract or anything. So it's it, it it's groundbreaking territory three ninety nine slash four ninety nine for the sixteen and sixty four gig configurations. Yeah, I, I've been. Uh, I was talking to people about it in terms of the you know with two year contract price, which is not a thing anymore in most cases, and and it totally it totally isn't. But we all understand the context of that, and in that context, the iPhone SE is free. Right? Yeah, <laughs> right. That that's where it's fitting in the line is it's a hundred below the uh, what is it the six S yeah. base. Yeah, that's where it fits. It fits in the exactly in the same slot as the 5S. And that's just remarkable for something that's not two-and-a-half-year-old technology. That's, well, you know, six-month-old technology. And Ben Thompson's, it, it really is. And and Ben Thompson's piece that you're talking about was really great because a lot of the criticism was uh, people were looking at what its uh, price was going to be in India. It's like retail price. And he's he's so so good with um, some of this international stuff, especially. He's, he pointed out that um, the stores in India don't sell at the retail price. And he did a calculation of, like, what... Uh, considering the street prices of existing phones in India, what the street price of this would be. And it basically goes back to they priced it the way they did to get it to be the price they want it to be, which is essentially the same price as it is in the U.S. Um, for India. So um, he deflated some of the criticism of like uh, the exchange rate ruining the the idea that it might be a, right. a lower cost iPhone. Hmm. Yeah, I I I don't know. I don't have much to say about the price, but I do think that it's it's noteworthy and it it signals a strategic change. The lowest they... the lowest cost iPhone right now, for the first time in a while, has almost all the features of the uh, expensive iPhones. Right? It's not uh, it's not a low cost because it's two year old tech right, right at the moment, and that's good. It's a good deal right now. It's a great deal. Right, and and I think that the way that we'll see this is, or and you know, it, it, they don't break out the models that much. They did say on stage, Jaws said that they sold thirty million four inch phones in twenty fifteen. Um, it was actually your piece that that opened my eyes to it because you mentioned that they sell in your write up that they sell two hundred and thirty million total. So it's still only like eleven percent. Because I wrote down in my notes thirty million four inch phones, and I circled it like, hey, it's still a popular size. Like I'm not I'm not a weirdo for wanting a four inch phone. But then I realized it's only it's only like ten percent. Yeah, well, so like thirteen. I I did. I mean, the 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 years are probably wrong, but I looked at what they sold last year, and um. And it's thirteen percent or something like that. But keep in mind that's thirteen percent of a one to two, right. one and a half to two and a half year old phone. Right. So they're going to sell more than that. So I think it's totally reasonable that the iPhone SE could be fifteen to twenty percent of the total iPhone sales. Which is, yeah. you know, if, if you're asking the question, is it worth updating the four inch phone? Is it worth having this as part of your product lineup, which is actually five phones wide? Uh, yeah, I mean, if it's, if you're going to sell twenty percent of your line is going to be this phone, it's totally worth it. Yeah, but I think if it proves as popular as I suspect it will be, which is a little bit more, you know, maybe maybe it'll creep up to like fifteen percent 
to 20% of iPhones sold now that it has as good a camera and it's just as fast. Because I feel like that's the two things that even casual people, if you tell them this phone is just as fast and it takes just as good of pictures and video as the 6S, then anybody who's tempted by the size will say, well, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm fine with the first generation touch ID sensor and I'm fine without having 3D touch and the other little things that are missing. Um, it's going to affect the average selling price of iPhone. Right. It's this is a move where I think strategically Apple is now willing to have the average selling price of iPhone drop in order to sell more phones throughout the world. Yeah, I, I agree, although I think it'll be less dramatic than we might think because of the fact that they already were selling a phone at this price. It's just gonna be a more for and again, it's going to be a, that curve where it's going to be the current phone for six months, right. and then it's going to be a, a step behind the the high end phones for a year after that, and then for another unknown period after that, it'll presumably be two years behind. So it'll have a you know it'll have a sales curve that'll go back down. But for the first six months or year, it'll it'll eat into the ASPs a little bit, right? Because it, just because it's a better phone at that at that price point, but it's not like they didn't have one there before that wasn't. I mean, they sold whatever it was, 20 million of them at that price in the last year. So, um, you know, it, it, the the ASP change is only going to be in sort of the difference between uh, the, the boost that they get because it's a much better phone. But they are willing to do that. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. Um, anything else on an iPhone before we move on? I don't know. I, I mean, I think I we, think I think we got on a phone that all has right. it's me, all entirely things that have already existed. Well, then <laughs> let me before we move on to the iPad Pro, the new iPad Pro. I will uh, take a moment here to thank our uh, uh, our last sponsor, uh, and it's a new sponsor. I love these. I love these people. I've tried this, and it is terrific. It's HelloFresh. H e l l o f r e s h. They are a meal kit delivery service, and they make cooking fun, easy, and convenient. So you sign up, and you can uh, you can get like a, a three meals a week or four meals a week. You can get five meals a week, and and they're designed for either two or four people. So you say uh, we're a family of four, we want three meals a week. They have new recipes uh, and meals every week. You pick the ones that appeal to you that you want, and then the food just shows up at your door in a box and it's they use like uh, dry ice to keep the stuff cold and stuff like that everything shows up and it's all the exact right amount of quantities so there's no nothing to waste so it and it really does work out well we've done this and it the food is great it comes and it's super super attractive i was always worried with the meal delivery thing it's like i'm kind of picky when i'm in the supermarket like when i pick the produce like i want you know i don't want like a green pepper that's squishy i want a good one everything that they sent us was absolutely perfect i mean just super super great stuff really fresh ingredients um and the recipes are all designed to uh, to be done in 30 minutes or less and the recipes are terrifically well explained i mean even an idiot like me who can't cook could do it um it is i can't say enough good stuff good food good recipes great instructions incredibly convenient uh, it, I, I, it's amazing to me that this works it feels like I'm living in the future and it saves you from going to the grocery store um, can't say enough good things about it give it a try you get 35 bucks off your first week of deliveries by by using this code you just use the code talk show and you go to hellofresh.com uh, so you go to hellofresh.com take a look at it Pick out the ones that you want, and you'll save thirty-five dollars. 
just by using the code TALKSHOW, T-A-L-K-S-H-O-W. Can't say enough good stuff about it. Highly recommend it. Uh, Go give them a try. HelloFresh. Groceries just delivered right to your door. Crazy. It's what a world we live in. Uh, So then we got, now we have the iPad Pro, which I guess we could start by just talking about the name, which was as rumored that there is nothing, you know, it's not the iPad Air 3. It is just called iPad Pro. And I guess that's not unprecedented, right? Because the name of the 13-inch MacBook Pro is MacBook Pro. And the name of the 15-inch MacBook Pro is MacBook Pro. So it's just, you know, specify it by size. It kills me the the decimals though. It makes me sad. I really like to refer to these as the ten and thirteen inch iPads, but yeah. they're, they're they're a little bit they come up a little short. So I there is nothing like you talk about having problems as a product reviewer. Boo hoo! But I have to set up like a keyboard shortcut or something for feels like a nine point seven inch iPad Pro every time I type that now. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's the, it's like the little one or the ten. I call it the ten inch, but it's not ten inches diagonal. It's nine point seven inches. So I, I'm already sick of I'm already sick of typing it out. I yeah, don't like it. yeah, me too. I mean, maybe we can come up with a nickname for it, but you know that that was the advantage of saying eleven inch MacBook Air. It's like eleven inch is better than nine point seven inch. That's not fun to to write, but it does make sense. I mean, this is this is the laptop laptopification i don't know of the uh of the ipad line where it's like instead of saying we're going to count by one every time we release one and we're going to keep the old ones around instead it strikes me that this is a little bit more like nope these are the slots we got a big one and a little one and those are our ipad pros and next year if we if we update them they're just going to fit in these slots and the old ones will go away and the new yeah. ones will be here and that's just like like we do with laptops and desktops right there's no other than like the ones they keep around for education like the non-retina MacBook Pro i mean generally when the retina MacBook Pro gets updated they don't keep the old one around too it's like these are the, they replace them with with new ones and these are the new ones i feel like that's what they're doing with the iPads yeah i feel like it's a sign of uh, at least from Apple's perspective, that they see this as it. Once it's gotten the, this year is the year that the iPad became like a, an established product. Or maybe that's the wrong word, but that it's it's kind of grown up to the point where it's and and they're you know they're the whole push that Schiller gave on stage for it is that this is a credible alternative to somebody to upgrading from an older PC. This can this can be your primary big screen computer other than the phone, and I feel like. By calling them, you know, pro. That's this is finally the point where they could say that that's true. Yeah, I but think I, I, I think I also, so. It's a, it's a moment. It's a, it's a moment in the life of the iPad. Right. There was um, a, a controversy. Might be the wrong word, but people definitely wrote about it. Um, that that Schiller, when he mentioned that, he said that there's 600 million PCs in use that are five plus years old, and we think that's really sad. And everybody laughed. And there, the controversy, I guess, or the complaint about it is that it's uh, sort of tone deaf to the economic, the perfectly logical and sensible lot economic reasons why people might be using six or seven year old PCs. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, I, I feel like yeah, I, I I had that thought at the time of like, well, this is in the category of making some jokes at the expense of PCs. And making some jokes from the perspective of being a computer manufacturer who wants you to buy new things, but not like, but like missing the point, especially since legendarily Apple's 
computers have been the ones that have lasted a long time. Right. And so to say a five-year-old PC is sad, um, does that make a five-year-old Mac sad? Does that make an eight-year-old Mac sad? Does that make John Syracuse's Mac Pro sad? His <laughs> 20-year-old Mac Pro. Yeah, but it's still kicking. So um, I, I don't know. It, it, I, get what he, I get what he was trying to say. I get what he was trying to say. It's like these old PCs are hanging on and they weren't that great to begin with. And, and, uh, and I mean, I was, if, I, if I could channel him, what I'd say is the people who are using those old PCs, a lot of them are people who don't need a PC. Five years ago, this was the only thing they could get to get on the internet. Like you buy a computer to get on the internet. Um, and a lot of that stuff, if all you're doing, like my mom was like this, my mom had a MacBook Pro for a long time and now she has an iPad. <laughs> she is very happy with her iPad Air and not having a MacBook Pro anymore because it was the, her laptops for years, her Mac laptops were the, her gateway to the internet, her gateway to do especially email. And, uh, you know, there are other devices that do that now that are way better for that purpose. And, and the iPad is that device for her. Yeah. And, and so I think that's what Schiller was kind of getting at is this idea that, you know, these old PCs, you bought them because you needed to, to do things with them that you don't need to use a PC for anymore. And you can just dump them, get an iPad and you'll be happy. Um, but it did, I, I, I had that thought of like, you know, is it sad? I mean, P, other than that PCs are sad in general, which I think yeah. was part embedded in the his joke, statement. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's, you have to realize that when Apple talks about PCs, PC is Apple lingo for Windows PC. Yeah. Like the Mac is a personal computer, but the Mac is not in Apple lingo a PC, even though logically it is. And that's sort of... You know, a lot of what Schiller was saying is just as much an argument about why somebody doesn't need a Mac instead of just using an iPad. And it's a little bit, you know, it, it it's like Windows Windows PCs become the whipping boy for the iPad marketing, but it's it's a little uh, not uncomfortable, but it's a little bit like I I I knew with the direction Schiller was going and how hard he was pushing it, I knew there wasn't going to be any surprise MacBooks at that event because there's no way you could bring MacBooks on stage after everything he said about how you don't need a traditional PC. Yeah, it did. I I had the that thought of like going to be hard to introduce Macs now. <laughs> I mean, just because like laptops are unnecessary. Right. Also, we have laptops. <laughs> right. Like <laughs> oh, well. Like yeah, Im nice. imagine, you know, it's the same way that like, imagine if instead of unveiling a smaller iPhone, if they had unveiled, if the iPhone SE was a bigger iPhone, like it was 5.7 inches, the biggest phone we've ever had, you don't even need a tablet anymore, then you can't have iPads come out after that, right? No. You know, this can replace a tablet for, for a lot of people. If that was the selling of the iPhone, then you can't come out afterwards with iPads. So I kind of knew that. And I, I, I guess the other thing is that I think it's, it's just innate to somebody who's a longtime uh, Apple person like Schiller to kind of want to crack jokes at Windows expense. That's, to me, it was clearly what Schiller intended. It was sort yep. of a joke at Windows being crappy and older Windows even worse, right? A six or seven-year-old Windows machine is even worse than at least a modern, faster one. And that's kind of sad. But it definitely played wrong. I mean, it was it, way more than one person emailed me about it. And... Uh, you know, I think it was an a, unusual misstep for for Apple. 
Yeah, but I, I think mean, it's. I can see world, how they but, made it though, because internally uh-huh. it would made all the sense in the world. I wouldn't be surprised if he said the exact same thing word for word in rehearsals, and nobody, it didn't even occur to anybody. Everybody we, just saw it as a joke at Windows expense. Any of us who have who know what the Apple lexicon is can look at what was said and be like, I get what he was saying there. Right. But but yes, it seems like they maybe didn't have that second thought, which is, but this is not how it will necessarily be perceived. Um, right. And, you know, the the usual suspects, like I was waiting for Kyle Weins at iFixit to chime in, which he did about it, because it's like, uh, that's been his thing for a long time, that Apple, you know, Apple wants you to have your computer be disposable, and you get rid of it and replace it with a new one, rather than fixing it yourself, and here's somebody who fixed their, their MacBook, and I just refurbed my mom's old MacBook Pro, I put an SSD in it, and I, I maxed the RAM out, and I sold it, um, I was going to give it to a friend, and then they didn't, they bought a new computer, so I sold it on Craigslist to a, a college student. But hmm. it was pretty great after after I got the spinning hard drive out of it and put in an SSD and maxed out the RAM. It was it was a two thousand nine or something, and it was still it's still fine. I saw a guy at uh, Starbucks like a week or two ago using uh, the black MacBook, oh. and he he obviously kept it in tremendous shape because it was all it just looked great. It looked like near mint, uh, and. It was one of those moments where I was like, whoa, what kind of computer is that guy using? That looks cool. And then I realized what it was, that it was an old black MacBook. And I was like, wow, hats off to that guy, man. He really takes care of that thing. But also hats off to Apple for making a a design that 10 years later still made me think, whoa, what is that cool thing? You can get to the hard drive right from the battery bay for that one. So you could pull that out and put in an SSD really easily. And it's amazing how many of the old computers, the big problem with them is just that the drives are really slow. So that's like number one tip is, you know, but I I get what, yeah, I get what Phil Schiller was saying. And it just, it made it difficult to, uh, to talk about Max at the event. And I, I certainly had opened to, to a little bit of criticism. I get what they were saying, right? Here's what I would like, I would be interested to know is not how many, um, how many five-year-old, PCs are in use, but how many like three, four year old iPads are in mm. use? Yeah, because I still think I firmly believe that the quote unquote problem with iPads, with the way that sales have actually declined and sort of steadily gone down, but are still pretty, you know, compared to the PCs, you know, it's still like they still sell like 10 million of them a quarter. It's not, it's not going away i still think though that the fundamental problem is that people get problem from apple's perspective is if people get an ipad and if they like it what they like about it they still like three four years later they don't they don't see the need to up upgrade until the the thing breaks yeah i agree i think uh this is the you know the there's that like I forget exactly the details, but it's the legend of like you make a product so great that nobody ever needs a replacement, and you go out of business because right. you can't you know you can't do that. That's it's, although that story is actually the story of every app developer, right? <laughs> like you sell it once, and then you can't ever sell it again because it's free updates forever. Right. And, and, and sales and in my and if I'm right, then the reason sales were so much higher in the early years, up like around twenty million a quarter, is because there was the iPad. There was nothing like it, and so it was an unfulfilled uh, desire on the marketplace. Like, and people were realizing, wow, I think I could really use one of those things because they didn't have anything like it. And so it was on that, the sales were unnaturally high compared to where they quote unquote should be. Yeah. And I would love to know that because that's clearly, you know, the idea is, look, if you have an old creaky, this is what the Apple's saying. If you have an old slow PC, and you're looking to buy a new thing, you should look at this. Look at this iPad Pro. This is, you know, it, it, it's the future of computing. 
it has everything you need and it does these other it's better in so many ways um and i think that 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 kind of might apply to ipads it might be like look you think you your ipad's still good enough but the new ones we've done so much in the last four years and this is so much lighter and it's got stereo sound and a better display um i think that it's you know they've got to start marketing it towards you Mm -hmm. know people who who have old ipads i i feel like they're going to sell a lot of the of the little ipad pro because that is the mainstream size um and maybe not to people who already have an ipad air 2 although probably to some of them too but to older ipads you know it's newer and lighter it's got the pencil support i think the pencil on that size is going to be big for a lot of people. Yeah. And so, so I feel like that, that is the product that we've been sort of waiting for, for the last year of, yeah. you know, what's the next 10 inch iPad and, and what features is it going to have? And it, it's pretty impressive set of features that it's got. So I feel like they are going to, uh, whether it's going to make a difference in terms of the iPads overall, like sales decline, who knows, but I do feel like that it, it will be enough to motivate a bunch of people to uh to upgrade their old ipads and they haven't had any motivation for a year and a half yeah uh so one of the things that really interested me about it was it wasn't just a shrunk down 12 inch or 12.9 inch uh (laughs) ipad pro it actually it 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 gained a little in terms of the display and the camera it has a superior camera and a better display and it lost a little in that it doesn't have the the new super fancy usb3 lightning port and I, I don't think there's anything else that's missing. I, I could be wrong, but I, I, you know, so it's on the plus side, it's a superior iPad in terms of the display and having the true tone technology uh, and the camera, which is again, like the, on the iPhone SE, it's the success camera assembly or camera system, um, including the bump. Uh, yep. And on the lightning, it doesn't have USB three. So that's interesting to me because I, I, and I'm not even quite sure how that came about. It's like you would think it would have it would I can see how it's better in some ways, but I'm surprised it doesn't have USB three. Yeah. I was talking to Christina Warren about this the other day and uh I I gave her this like scenario of like if I'm Mr. Moneybags and I walk into an Apple store and I say Pro- provide to me your finest iPad um with all of the greatest features. Hmm. They they can't <laughs> because some of them are on the iPad Pro. And some of them are on, or some of them are on, sorry, the, the big iPad Pro, and some of them are on the small iPad Pro. Right. And, and it's a, just a weird combination of them that, that, you know, True Tone, you want the True Tone, get the small one. You want USB 3 transfer speeds, get the big one. Yeah, that's an interesting. You want a good camera, get the small one. Right. Hmm. You want the, and it's got the color, you want the same color gamut as the modern, like the, the 2015 model IMAX, Retina IMAX. That's on the small one, not the big one. Right. Uh, I don't know. Kind of, you know, I, I'm assuming it'll work itself out eventually, you know, six months oh, sure. from now or a year from now. But it's an interesting state of affairs. I can't help but think it probably has, it probably just comes down to component pricing. I'm guessing yeah, that, that, that that they that wanted would be to my hit, guess. right? So the big iPad Pro is is at you know starts at a much higher price, and this one starts at five ninety nine. And I guess because the display is smaller, they can afford to make it better. I, I don't know. I'm just guessing that whatever complicated math goes into figuring out how, you know how do we make it so we can sell this at five ninety nine with the margins we want that USB three didn't make the cut. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a uh, it's a if, if I had to guess, it's a weird combination of. 
what price what what features do we omit from the small the smaller model because we just don't have the margins for it and what new innovations do we have that we can put in a brand new product that wasn't available six months ago yeah. and this is what you get is you get the product some features removed because you want to hold the line on margins but we came up with this true tone thing and it wasn't ready for the 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 big ipad pro but it's ready now so let's yeah. ship it in there and get and get something new in there um this is why uh ideally you don't ship your product line in alternating cycles like this right ideally right. you say here are all the new ipad pros like here are all the new retina macbook pros and you do it at once and then you can explain well the 15 has some things the 13 doesn't right. like when i i had an 11 inch air right and the 11 inch air doesn't have the card reader for example it's right. like all right it just it doesn't but that's okay but if the 11 inch air was out of sync with the 13 inch air and got the new features first but also lacked some old features because the small one doesn't get those you'd be where we are with the iPad Pro where they're just kind of out of, out of step and that's a question about you know are they going to be in step now is every spring are we going to get new iPad Pro models is that how it's going to work i don't know yeah i wonder or maybe because now it's a mature like i said like mature like in the way that the MacBook Pros are mature maybe they come out on a iPads come out on a they're when they're ready we will release them schedule you know that there is yeah. no like there's no real pattern to when we expect new MacBooks they you know, we get rumors of when they're coming out and people who pay attention to Intel's, you know, chip uh, pipeline can estimate, you know, well, you know, this chipset is coming out soon or this one's delayed. So new MacBooks are probably delayed, but it's, there's no like, it's not like with the iPhone where you know that it's going to be like a Tuesday in the middle of September. Right. Um, here's, the, here's a fascinating fact and I cannot explain it. So the camera bump, I hate camera bumps. I really do. I know I, 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 to an irrational degree, really hate the camera bump on the iPhone 6 and 6S. Really, really hate it. I just, every time I, and I, my thumb just goes to it like, like rubbing like a, a pimple on your, on your other hand or like playing with a wart or something. It's the other I, advantage of of sticking it in a case is that I don't have that once it's, it's in the case. I, I really – it's the closest – that's the main reason that I almost carried my 6S. And I even spent like a month with it in a case is for exactly that reason because it alleviated the bump. So the iPad has the bump, the iPad, oh. new iPad Pro. But when you put it on a tabletop, it does not wiggle. It doesn't wobble. I don't understand how this is possible. I don't. I don't. <laughs> I know, and Matthew Panzerino tweeted about it, and people were saying that he's full of shit, and you know, saying you're lying. I, that's impossible. And he like shot a video, and it's like you lay it on a flat table, and it doesn't wobble. I don't. I, I guess it's. I don't understand. I'm sure it has something to do with the curvature of the Earth. Um, <laughs> I, I my guess is that there's something. You know, you've got it's a much larger item than right. the, the much larger surface than the iPhone. So it right. probably has something to do with the angle of the lift of it being reduced by that amount of distance. Right. So that it's, it, it's, um it's imperceptible compared to um, something that's very, because if you had something that was really small and there was like a, a bump on one side and maybe my, would, the, the, the angle would be greater. Maybe over, my dining room table surface. isn't perfectly flat. I don't know. It, but it could be. It's it, but and so somebody out there Curv might have curvature a, of the earth. I'm telling you, it's somebody just, out there, it's physics man. It might wobble on somebody's table, and I'd be interested to hear from anybody if if they get it and it does wobble. But I, if your concern about the camera bump is that when you lay it flat on a table, it's going to wobble, I'm telling you, it doesn't. So there's, right. it's got that going for it. Well, that's good because that would be a disaster if that was the case. Like, hey, it's got the Apple pencil; you can draw on it. Now lay it on a table. Nope, <laughs> that would be awful. 
Uh, otherwise, I, I don't, you know, I, I don't know what to, what else to say about it. It's, you know, it's the iPad Pro. It's got the pencil. Well, so, so when, when, uh, when they announced the True Tone feature, um, somebody in the audience went, ah, and uh, Phil Schiller went, ah, somebody knows what I'm talking. That was about. me. And afterward, you I, said it was you. Yeah, I swear to God, that was it. Was I am me. not surprised. I'm so not surprised. I don't think that's quite the noise I made, but I did. <laughs> I did. You, you audibly something. reacted. I audibly reacted because to me, it's like the next step up from Retina. Like, and I wanted Retina screens, you know, my entire life, so I can no longer see the pixels because clearly that's the way it should be. But to to adjust for color temperature is the next, you know, it, something I've thought of for as long as I've been using computers because I've noticed that boy, wait, at nighttime when you have incandescent lights on, uh, boy, the white doesn't look like white anymore. Or it looks too white, or something, you know. That it's not like paper, right? Well, it's not. It's not white balancing, like you know, our eyes white balance to man- match the temperature of the light, but the 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 de- the device doesn't know, right? right? It's just set to whatever color temperature it's set to, and that's what you get. Right. Um, it's a it's a great idea. I I want to see it in practice, right? I want I want to go through that and see whether this is something that I really. You know, I really noticed or not, but I like, I really like the idea of it. And like Craig Hockenberry was saying, this is, there's a lot of color management business that's happening on, on yeah. the iPad these days. And, and for any of us from, um, the old, uh, sort of desktop publishing days, the idea that you've got really interesting things happening with color on these devices is uh, really great. I was talking to, to, um, when I talked to Glenn Fleischman, I was on the Macworld podcast 500 and we were talking about this and, um, and he he mentioned that this is one of those moments where you kind of wish uh, Bruce Fraser was still around because he mm. would love he would love this he was a he he passed away a few years ago but he was a color management like god basically right. I learned so much from that guy about how human the brain perceives color and all, all of this stuff and uh, it's really interesting to see Apple go down this path where it's like you know we all just took for granted that the white point of your display was what it was right? remember when you used to have to calibrate it manually. Oh yeah, like uh, cross your eyes and and yeah. adjust this thing until yeah. you get the right yeah. gamma. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, and and then they make like things with suction cups that you'd stick on right. your screen, and then it would put something on it, and it would read what the light was off of it, and it would know how to calibrate the display so that it would get an a- the color that would be the same as the color that you would print, and the same as the color that would come out on the offset press when you printed your catalog. All yeah. of that, you know, just so much goes into that, um, and and it's a little bit like. There's like memory color, this idea that, that y- it's almost like an optical illusion. It's your brain, your brain knows what colors things are. So it will actually adjust what you see to be the color that it isn't. Like if you see an apple and it's red, but it's the wrong red, your brain like right. corrects it right. unto- and makes it the right red. And that's not what you're seeing, but it's what you think you're seeing. So there's so much in here. And so for Apple to like dip their toe in and be like... Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna work on color now, or this is the next frontier for us. Is uh, it's really interesting beyond just the the true tone feature. Yeah, it's. I haven't spent. I, I have the iPad Pro. I have a review unit of it. Um, I haven't spent it so far. I haven't. I spent most of my time with the iPhone, not the iPad. So I've I've tinkered with it. Um, um, but not. I haven't really spent that much more time with it. Really looking at the at the night sh- or not night shift the the true tone, than you did at the event. Really, uh, it. But it's it is nice. It definitely it is, and it's not a gimmick. It's and I, I totally believe Schiller that once you get used to it, you want it on all your devices. 
I think it's going to have a better effect than the than the night shift thing. Because I think sh- the, I think night shift is is a gimmick. I mean, and if there's people out there who listen who really do feel like they get a better night's sleep with it, then good. I, I you know I hope, hope, wish everybody a good night's sleep. But to me, it seems like a gimmick. Yeah, it's um. I think it's it's fine, but I I. When I think about True Tone, I think what what um, the best benefit of Night Shift is solved by True Tone. That, yeah. That that Night Shift. I use Night Shift. I've been using the nine three beta for a while on my iPad Pro because um, the the big iPad Pro um, had the nine nine point two was quirky on the yeah. big iPad Pro. So I've been using the beta for a while, and so I've had Night Shift, and I find myself using it a lot at night. And in the early morning, when I've got incandescent lights and the the super blue white color temperature of the of the display is like totally out of whack with my surroundings, well, Nice Shift can do that, but True Tone does that. True Tone does that yeah. solves that same problem where the white that you're seeing on your screen is in context with the rest of your environment, and when you do that. Um, I, f- I feel like you've got the you've got most of the problem solved. That that for me, like I don't even need night shift if I've got a device that will just make my uh, iPad screen warm when I'm in the warm dark light of my living room at yeah. ten at night. It could just be yeah. I it's to me it's just making it look better. It's not about magically get you know that this solves the problem of getting a good night's sleep. And again, if I could be wrong, I don't know. But I thought even the way Apple spoke about night shift on stage was sort of like acknowledging that this is junk science that or or at least that the science is the, the quote-unquote science behind it is a little questionable. They're like some people say they get a better night's sleep. Uh I think that the problem and I I totally believe that there is a problem there. I just think the problem is staring at glowing screens period and that color shifting it isn't solving the problem. Have you I, have, did you see Glenn's piece on Macworld? No, um, I don't think I did. It, it's it's new as we record this. I think it was today that it comes Well, then I definitely didn't see it. He, he talked he t- actually talked to some people who are researchers in this field and I'm sure people are going to be skeptical and they're going to they're going to try to debate him on this, but what Glenn basically said is um it's not if it if it helps you if you feel it helps you great but there's not a lot of science to suggest right. that at the levels where apple is doing this where they're still keeping some blue in there so it's so it's just less yeah. it's 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 an issue of brightness and the fact that they're not cutting all the blue out because if you cut all the blue out um, it would look really bad. Like you wouldn't want to use it, and so right. they're keeping some of it in there. I think and it so, looks. I think it looks bad with as much blue as they're taking out. That's the reason right. that I don't like it. See, I, so so that's the so what his point is. You know, yeah, it's it, your brightness is a big factor in it too, and and how much does this affect the melatonin in your brain? And I, I think everybody would say that yeah, not having bright glowing screens is going to help you sleep better, but having a slightly less bright, slightly less blue glowing screen that you're looking at, it may it may not help enough to override the fact that you're watching that screen. Right. I think you're, you're kind of kidding yourself. Uh, you know, maybe the answer right. is, you know, read a book. <laughs> yeah, turn off, turn off the TV and give yourself an hour where you're just reading a book or something like that. <laughs> right. Get a subscription to the paper edition of your favorite magazine. Yeah. Um, all right. I want to talk a little bit about Gary Shandling. I'm just assuming that you were a Shandling fan. Yeah, I didn't see as much. I I never had premium cable, so I came to a lot of it late. Like I watched yeah. the Gary, it's Gary Shandling's show on 
Fox when they cut it up and put it on Fox because yeah. I, I never had when I was a kid I, we didn't even have cable so I, I certainly didn't have Showtime and then Larry Sanders also it was like a sporadic thing where they were getting um, did they get rerun somewhere else yeah. I saw them but I saw them like late I was never right like in on it but also as I mean we talked about it, as a as a late night talk show person I just remember him from all of his great guest bits and guest yeah. host bits on the Tonight Show and on uh, Letterman all right well before we talk about channeling let's I want to thank our fourth and final sponsor and it's our good friends at Mail Route. M-A-I-L-R-O-U-T-E. IT departments are expected to do more in 2016, but of course you're getting less money. Uh, and that includes really important stuff like stopping spam and virus attacks going through the email that you are responsible for. You being those of you listeners of the show who uh, are in the IT department who are responsible for email. Or if, like me, you're just a one, you know, one person who owns a domain name that you get email through. Um, if you're in charge of the email for a domain, MailRoute is something you really ought to look at. Um, who can you trust to do the job and stick around? MailRoute. These guys at MailRoute, this is all they do is, is email. Um, they protect your email and your hardware or your server against spam, viruses, and other attacks. They don't host your email for you. There's, MailRoute isn't a company that hosts email for you. So you keep the mail server you already have. What you do is you change your MX records for your domain name to point through MailRoute first. And it's just like a screen. The email goes to them. And then from MailRoute, it goes on to your existing regular mail server, except without any of the spam and without any of the junk. Uh, you can set it up and just have it go through. And as soon as the MX records update, it just works. And that's it. You're done. You don't even have to touch it. Um, but if you want to, if you want to nerd out and customize it, they have an API that can, uh, you can program it. You can do all sorts of super nerdy stuff. I mean, if you're an email nerd, you're going to love this. Um, the spam filtering that they do is as good as any that I've seen. Uh, you know, some of my domains are go through Google and Google has great spam filtering. Uh, I think Apple's spam filtering has gotten a lot better with Mac.com over the years. Uh, mail route spam filtering is just as as good as it can get almost no false positives and almost uh, all the junk goes through it just it's it's like the old days of email before spam was invented it's amazing they've also got and i think this is key they've got great interface for going through and checking to you know if you need to check to see if something was erroneously flagged to spam or something like that you can still get it it's not like the spam what they call spam just gets flushed away uh could not be better uh, they have price matching for McAfee and MX Logic customers. I don't even know what MX Logic is, but if you do, then you ought to talk to MailRoute because uh, they've got price matching. You can stop spam today for free. You get a 30 day free trial. Try it for 30 days, totally free. And if you don't like it, just change your MX records back. You don't even. It's not. You have to move all your email around. It couldn't be easier to turn, to switch it off if you don't want to use it. Um, so here's where you go: MailRoute.net slash TTS, mailroute.net slash TTS, or you can even email them at sales at mailroute.net and just ask questions and, and see if it's for you. Uh, and use that uh, mailroute.net slash TTS, you get 10% off for the lifetime of your account. Lifetime. So if you're using them 10 years from now, you'll, save, you'll still be saving 10, 10%. So my thanks to them. The Shandling thing. Oh, Jason, that's I feel like this is. I feel like this is maybe like the rest of my life. Is all of a sudden yep. now people who are, start dying are like people who I cannot believe that they've died, and 
like a heart attack at 66 isn't exactly old age, but it is sort of, you know, it's the sort of thing that when I was a kid and they'd say some famous person died of a heart attack at 66 as a kid, I thought, well, that's, you know, that's what happens when you get old. Sometimes people have heart attacks and die. Uh, I, I, I don't know. It's like Shandling's too close in age to me, though. It's like it just seems like I'm at the age now where 66 is like tragically young. Yeah, well, I mean, that was what he and Jerry Seinfeld talked about in that comedians in cars mm-hmm. getting coffee, right? Right. Is like the the only time they ever refer to being in your 60s is as so young is when you die in your 60s. <laughs> yeah. But it's true. Like, and, and some of it is the older you get, the the more you push off like old age, right? It's like no, right. 40 isn't old. No, 50 isn't old. 60 isn't old. But also, just our, uh, human lifespans are increasing right and and our working lives are increasing and so what was a retiree maybe when we were kids is now a more active uh, kind of age today so you yeah. look at him being 66 and yeah i guess this is how life is going to be <laughs> as you get older all these people uh, that you love uh, are are dying but um but yeah too just too young i was I didn't have Showtime either. I did have cable though, so I was exposed to the It's Gary Shandling show on the Fox, yeah. which was slightly edited. I guess there were you know I, commercials sure. and some whatever, like if there were words right. or nudity or whatever. But yeah, I, me too. I but I I just it it spoke to me in a way that the only other person you know you and I have spoken at length about our our mutual love for David Letterman. Um, it spoke to me in a way that only Letterman did, in the way that he was playing with the form of TV. Uh, and it, it's a, it, a couple of the obituaries m- mentioned it, that he was just a master of television. And, and in a way that, like, I don't know if he ever considered, you know, like having a film career, although he did have, the, he was the, the senator in the Iron, Iron Man, Man too. Yeah. 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 Right. Um, it, it, in a way that, like, the basic gist of show business was always, at least in our lifetimes, you know, in the late 20th century, was TV was the B team and the, a, and the feature films were the A team. You know, yep. that's what you aspired to do. Um, and it, Shandling is a guy who clearly, I mean, in Letterman too, because remember they used to be talk about Letterman doing movies and Disney, you know, wanted to, uh, who was the CEO of Disney? Uh, oh, uh, Michael Eisner. Michael Eisner really wanted to sign Letterman to a movie uh deal and let him was like have you ever seen you know I, I'm, I'm a terrible actor you don't want to do this and he's like <laughs> just let us give you the money we'll just let us and then like they dug up like letterman's audition for airplane uh and and Einstein was like holy shit you're right you're terrible <laughs> you're absolutely terrible yep um shandling's a guy who clearly it's like his genius was specific to tv it would it it wouldn't have had any relevance to to movies it was tv as tv not TV as movies on a small screen. That the nature of television was such that it, it, he just it, he mastered it in a way that it it just blew me away as a kid. I was like, this is a guy who totally gets it. Well, like like Letterman, he was present in this medium while he was like poking at all the all the edges of it, and and like I mean, it's Gary Shandling's show broke my brain because right. it was a show that knew it was a TV show, and the characters from, knew they were characters on a TV show. It's they, just <laughs> what am I seeing here? Right, as a kid, as a whatever fifteen, sixteen year old kid, it's just baffling and brilliant. And right. in the same way, the Letterman was taking all of the as we've talked about before, all the conventions of talk shows right. and questioning why any of them existed. Right. Um. <laughs> So it also really, it just 
blows my mind that he did it twice in, yeah. in quick succession, where he had the It's Gary Shandling show, which which was this sitcom, sitcom, you know, the, the sitcomiest sitcom that's ever mm-hmm. existed. Wacky Neighbor, the platonic friendship with a, a woman, uh, all of these tropes of the modern sitcom, and he just blew them all away by by opening up the fourth wall and talking to the camera and talking to the audience and having the audience throw things at the characters. Um, and then two years later, coming back with another like meta. I mean, that's that's the thing that he was the master of, like this meta aspect of TV and doing meta in a totally opposite way where there's no breaking down of the fourth wall but there was this weird fake talk show within the show that looked as it looked more like the tonight show than the tonight show did mm-hmm. well he hosted the tonight show he was like before before jay leno became the guest host he was right. for for years he was like the permanent guest host of the tonight show he would fill in for johnny right. a lot and i remember seeing him fill in for johnny a lot and and so he knew that was the fascinating thing about larry the larry sanders show is that um the people who did that especially gary shandling he knew exactly how those shows worked right. he knew the he knew the hosts uh he had been in consideration for the jobs Right, I, I believe he was considered for to be David Letterman's replacement at one point. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he had the offer. He was offered it and turned it down. I'm not quite sure if he was ever. I I think that he had actually sort of stepped away from wanting to host. You know, do it full time, so that he was never really like in the consideration. Like at the point where they needed to replace Johnny, he was already like, I'm out of it. But I yeah. think you're exactly right, though, that in the late '80s, you know. He was absolutely in consideration. Yeah, um, and and so he had all of that knowledge, right? He was he was an insider. This was not this was not somebody like um, Aaron Sorkin doing Studio sixty on the Sunset Strip, where he had right. sort of like a glancing blow at this at this uh, at this industry, uh, but really was kind of imagining. Uh, a fantasy version of it. This Larry Sanders was people who understood how the TV industry worked and how the talk shows worked, making a show uh, that was insidery on one level, but also kind of like at, at times just a, a scabrous commentary and satire of of the not just the show but the guests, right? And and it was it, it you see the roots of so many things. It's uh, the the cringe comedy of things like yep. The Office come from this. Curb uh, your Rick, enthusiasm. Absolutely. Uh, well, I mean, very Gary Shandling and Jerry Seinfeld really did. They they did their shows across the lot from each other. They went and visited in that comedians right. with cars getting coffee episode, and so so it, it, I think they influenced each other for for, for Seinfeld. Um, definitely, Ricky Gervais said that all of his stuff is just super influenced by Gary Shandling. And then something like Thirty Rock is another good example where Thirty Rock is absolutely you know would not exist if it weren't for Larry Sanders. Right, and took it, you know, in a totally in their own way, and and went like super fast paced, mm-hmm. and joke, 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 which is you know, it's, uh, the density of jokes on Thirty Rock just blows me away. Yeah, but uh, you're right though. It's you know, it's it all sort of owes itself back to to uh, uh, Larry Sanders. It's and it's amazing to me that he did those two shows like almost back to back. Yeah, yeah. It's it's the um the hall of fame kind of thing where it's like, those are, those are uh, Larry Sanders show is like in the hall of fame. And, and you could make the argument for, for the, for it's Gary Shandling show too, before that, the idea that, that um, when it's Gary Shandling show was going off the air, that that would be a footnote 
would seem impossible. And yet the next project was the thing that just kind of blew everybody away. I just remember him as a, he was a really great standup. I, I mean, I just remember yeah. how good he was as a standup um, on the Letterman show, especially that, um, and you could tell, you could tell when Letterman, when it was somebody who he liked. Like yeah. you could tell, and they would he would bring them over afterward, and they would talk, and they would do more comedy, and they they and and Chandling was definitely in that list. Like he was he was. I've read a few uh, obituaries that said that he was definitely like a comedian's comedian. Like they all yeah. they all just were in awe of how good he was as a comedian. Yeah, and he never really did anything after the Larry Sanders show. Um, I mean, I'm you know, I mean, other than like you know guest appearances here and there, but he never had a major project. But by all accounts that I've read, especially I, I've read it before, but now that it, you know he's dead and it's all coming out, but it really it's just almost universal that he was very generous in giving to any you know the up and comers like the Judd Apatow's and and the people who are in their yeah. prime right now in comedy that he really was you know they could come to him with like hey I'm working you know here's my script and I'm stuck here do you have any ideas and and would help him out in an industry that's notorious. For having you know being filled with personalities that are let's say less, less than generous. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, and the, I think you know, people like people actually like liked him and thought he was a, a good guy. <laughs> I think it's very telling that you never hear that about like Jay Leno. Nobody ever says, "Boy, that Jay Leno really knows how to help mm. up, help out an up and comer." You know, mm-hmm. and Chevy, Chevy Chase. Everybody yeah. loves Chevy Chase. <laughs> right. Nobody ever says that, or nobody ever says, "Boy, it's a real shame that something seems to be wrong with Chevy Chase these, nope. these days." <laughs> I get, I get, the, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think about that sometimes. Like, if you're, if you, if you're one of these TV uh, stars who has a huge hit, um, and I think in the case of Larry Sanders, he owned a big piece of it too. Like, yeah. this was before HBO made the deal. Like, it's not on HBO. They're actually bringing it back to the HBO uh, yeah, streaming service, but it went off uh, because back in those days, HBO didn't buy like all rights to everything in perpetuity right. like they do now. But um, so you make all this money, just insane TV money for being on a show for seven years. And then he had another six year show before that. And I, I've always wondered, like, what do you do? Some people, big stars and big successes, they, they react in different ways. Some people try to recapture it. Other people just kind of do passion projects. Other people just are like, I don't, I don't care. I'm going to, I mean, I think Bill Murray is sort of in this catalog yeah. category too, where like he wants to work when he's moved to work. Like when he finds something that for whatever reason interests him and uh, he doesn't need to work. Right. And, and obviously for him, He's not a he's not so obsessed with with keeping busy that he always has to have a project. He's kind of okay, and I think Gary Shandling was kind of like that, where he would pop in on the occasional thing, like and he like I would love to know the story of of why he chose to do the Marvel movies, those the yeah. Captain America and Iron Man movies. Like he was in a couple. He's a senator. He's kind of a rotten <laughs> senator villain character. Right. Yeah. Well, I know. I mean, it's a bit of a spoiler, but he you know, ends up he's uh, Hail Hydra. Like, yeah, <laughs> he's a he's a bad guy. I mean, he's a, he's a he's a, a corrupt senator. How, how, why did he decide that? And it was probably something like he knew somebody who was involved and thought it would be fun. And if I had and, to you know, guess, I don't know the story, but if I had to guess, I'll bet he was pe- friends with John Favreau. That could be. That because I be. think John Favreau is. I mean, he's more of a fil- he's a filmmaker, not really a comic. But I think he's in with you know. I wouldn't be surprised if he's in the same pack of guys. You know, yeah. like uh, like Judd Apatow, who are pals. I'll, yeah. I'll bet it's through John Favreau. Yeah, and so it looks to me like after he finished he, Larry Sanders, he was pretty much happy to just kind of uh, mess around when he wanted to right. and not worry about it otherwise. And, yeah. you know, when you've got 
I think that's a, a question that most of us will never have to deal with in our life. But it, but it is that question of like, if you won the lottery or something you created became a wild success and you literally didn't have to work again, what would you do? And would you just go to an island and sit out in the sun all day? Or would you work because you want to work and right. pretend that you don't have that money? Or would you kind of find a way to compromise where, you know, you weren't going to work too hard, but you'd be, you want to kind of keep in the game a little bit. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, yeah, you know, and just to touch on one other thing that you you with the the HBO deal, it's like in addition to the fact that the Larry Sanders show in and of itself stands up as a tremendous body of work. I've watched the whole thing through at least three times, at least three. Wow! And now that he's dead, I think I'm, I'm itching I, to do it again. I'm going to do it once it's on HBO. Yeah, so, I gotta, yeah, I'm going to wait for it to be on HBO. Um, uh, or, or I say three times, but I think a lot of the time I've done it, especially when it was original, it, I, I, you couldn't stream it. So it's like you either caught it or you didn't. And so, you know, I may not have hit, I was like watching it when I was home when it was on, but I, you know, I might have missed episodes. Um, and at least once those in the digital era, I've watched the whole thing. But it's the fact that it even, that there even are shows that we think of HBO as a network that has shows is in large part driven by or originated by the Larry Sanders show. Like well, that's what we think of HBO now, primarily. But at the time, HBO was where you went to watch movies. Yeah, and then sometimes they'd have shows, but a lot of their shows were things like Bryant Gumbel's sports thing. They weren't like uh, original uh, fiction, you know. Yeah, their their strategy has changed pretty dramatically, and that's and and as part of that, then they 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 locked up all the rights. Like they pr they produce all their own shows. They own the rights to them. They're all you know. That's why The Wire is on HBO. Like right. it will always be on HBO. It's and the Sopranos just, and Six exactly, Feet Under. Exactly. So Larry Sanders yeah. was predates that time, but they it's, it's cool. Like before he died, they were Gary Shandling had made a deal with HBO to bring Larry Sanders back onto HBO and onto HBO yeah. streaming. So it will get there. Eventually, and then I—it's I, a shame that they can't. I hope they're ru like rushing to get it on because yeah. um, I think we would all love to to uh, go back and watch that stuff again. Yeah, feel better about it. Well, the other part, you know, and the other genius aspect to it was that he had the foresight at a time when stand-up comedians the the goal was to get a network sitcom. Uh, his goal, he saw like past that, and he was like, if I can, you know, I can do something on Showtime or HBO that you can't do on the networks, you know. Like I think it was less about the money and the fame, and a little bit more about, uh, not to be pretentious, but the artistic integrity, you know, of doing something that you couldn't get on network TV and avoiding the, uh, you know, the the annoyance of the commercial interruptions. I mean, yeah. even though he did have it, he you know he let the show, the one show, be on Fox. It, which was I, I don't know I don't know what the backstory is on that, but but especially with Larry Sanders that he saw that that you know it wasn't like well I can't get a network show but I'll you know I'll do an HBO show. It's like clearly he saw HBO as a way to do something that he couldn't do on a on a network. Yeah, yeah, it's uh it's uh it's sad and and for the people who know him, it's you know it's really tragic for the rest of us. The good thing to come out of something terrible like this is I do really um, I like that so many people have come out to appreciate his talent and his work because you know that's I think that's all that any of us could ask for is is uh, yeah. when we go that somebody says wow that that I li I like that person they did a great job they they were brilliant I'm I'm gonna miss them and I definitely feel that way about about Shandling and and also celebrating his work I mean that's that's why I want that stuff back on HBO Go is that yeah. I want to. I want to go back and appreciate his work. I, I did watch that comedians in cars getting coffee again right. uh, yesterday for the same thing. It's like let me now that now that he's 
he's gone, you know, it's, it's worth reminding ourselves how, how great he was when he was here. Yeah. All right, Jason, thank you so much for the generous use of your time. Um, Happy to, as always. Always enjoy having you on the show. Always enjoy your insights. Um, uh, I won't see you again until probably WWDC. Yeah, I know. We always run into each other at these weird, weird events. One, one of these days, I'll actually just sort of be in Philadelphia for no reason. I'll say, <laughs> hey, John. But, uh, but yeah, it was good to see you this week, too. Yeah. Uh, thanks to all the sponsors. And you can get as much Jason Snell as you would ever want <laughs> on uh, sixcolors.com. Mm-hmm. Six colors dot uh, with the, you could even put a U in it if you're in Canada or the UK. Yeah. Um, you do you do any other podcasts? No, not really. Podcasting uh, is a yeah. You can find many podcasts by me at theincomparable.com and at relay.fm. Um, I I did the math the other day and I don't even want to tell you how, what I realized how many podcasts I do in a week on average. It's too many. Is the answer too many? <laughs> but. I'll tell you, you've gotten good at it, though. <laughs> well, this week we got uh, The Atlantic did this big feature about what a robot is, and it, it quotes from John Syracuse's and my uh, podcast, Robot or Not, at length. And I just <laughs> thought, you know, I'm going to be really mad if the thing that I'm remembered for is robot or not. <laughs> just like not my life's work. So, but, hey, let me yeah. ask you, Liam, is Liam a robot? Uh, you got to ask Syracuse. I would say, I would say he's probably not um, because it, it it's more like a... Syracuse's definition of robot is very narrow, which is that it, it needs to sort of have some, uh, it's got to sort of do some self-evaluation itself. So like a Roomba, you just press the button and it kind of figures out what to do. Um, but he, he doesn't think like a, uh, an automotive assembly line robot is really a robot. He thinks it's just pro- programmed equipment. And right. so he would say, he would say no, but he is a very strict yeah. uh, robot definer. 